I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Okay, well, I'm really excited to finally be sharing a relatively recent interview. Today, No End in Sight's brand new associate producer, Drew Marr, is interviewing me about all of my health updates from this year, plus lots of semi-related rambling and a bit about what to expect from upcoming podcast episodes. You'll get to know more about Drew in episode 71, and you can expect to hear his voice more in future episodes as he takes on more production work. In this episode, we talk a lot about hypermobility, mast cell disorders, PTSD, and the ongoing work of recontextualization as you find new frameworks for interpreting old symptoms. We also talk a bit about my TEDx talk, my storytelling anthology, and the NEIS void hashtag on Twitter. So I'll include links to all of those in the show notes. We're also refining how we do content notes for the show, so you might see a few iterations of that before we settle on a style. If you have any feedback about what's most helpful, we'd love to hear it. Today for content notes, you can expect conversations about alcohol at about 22 minutes in, 26 to 32 minutes, and 49 minutes. I start talking about a bike accident around 28 minutes in that gets a bit gruesome in terms of wound description around the 30 minute mark. And shortly after that, there is a description of violence and secondary trauma that continues to the 35 minute mark. Then from about 35 to 40 minutes, there is significant discussion about parent loss. We also talk briefly about restricted diets at 53 minutes in and then about COVID and lockdown at about the 60 minute mark. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, great. Do you want to ask me about my health and then whatever questions you have? So how was your health as a kid? Great question, Drew. Thank you. I have thought about this a lot and I think I talked about it a lot in episode one, but not in episode 50, that like I was not a very healthy kid, but I didn't really register that at the time. And I think there's a lot of reasons why. So first of all, I was exhausted all the time in elementary school. Like my mom used to dress me in bed, which is not normal. I don't think for a kid, like a prepubescent kid to not have that much energy. And I also was like, probably in a lot of pain. So when I was in third grade, my teacher called home to say like, Brianne keeps saying that she has a stomach ache or a headache, like almost every day. What's up with that? Is something going on? And this is this is like how the split happens. So both my parents are psych were psychologists, which okay. is not typical probably for a lot of people. And they split up when I was pretty young, when I was two or three years old. And then my stepmom was a social worker. And then my stepdad was in sales. So he's on his own trajectory. Oh but three of my four parents were mental health professionals, which is not normal. Yeah. So when I was in third grade and I was having a really hard time, I was also miserable. Like I came home crying from school almost every day. It was just a lot of things weren't going well. And also I think I was pretty uncomfortable. And at that time is when they do standardized testing in Ontario, which is where I grew up in Canada. And right. according to Canadian Achievement Test Results, that's what it's called, the CAT test, they would like use that as a screening tool for special education, okay. including gifted. And so 
I think I think it's kind of a bell curve situation, even though obviously there's a lot of bias that goes into testing and the construction of that bell curve. But they're like, okay, kids who performed in a certain percentile on this on this standardized test get pulled out for more follow-up testing, including a lot of tests that I now know are used to test for other types of neurodivergence. So like Raven's matrices and other stuff that eight-year-olds can do right. to, to test like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what they call it, but it's probably like innate intelligence, which is, I put in air quotes because it's a horribly flawed concept, but it's checking for how your brain works, basically. Yeah. So... That was optional, but like gifted education, I know you know this, but gifted education is a type of special ed, but it's not usually identified or talked about that way, probably to make it sound less stigmatized and for like a whole bunch of other reasons that maybe we talk about. Maybe we don't. But anyway, so I went into gifted in fourth grade and this impacted, I think, a lot of things. It was a full-time program. It was one of four in my city. So okay, it was like a normal... I don't know why I'm using the word normal so much, but it was like 30 kids in a classroom. Like it, it felt like any other education, but all of the kids in this classroom were kids who had been flagged by standardized testing as being at the time they would call it like deemed gifted. So you had an asterisk next to your name. But the reality <laughs> is that probably most of those kids were neurodivergent and yeah. getting put into this new environment that has been specifically designed for kids whose brains quote work a different way but like in a good way yeah. again quote i think creates like an interesting environment and for me and i know a lot of other people feel this way like i was a lot happier in school from fourth grade on but it was like i didn't think critically about that very much so yeah. that is one thing that i think played into it and then there's a couple other layers that i'm going to put into it that I didn't talk about, I realized in my last couple episodes. So layer one is that I said both my parents were psychologists. And the reason that my dad is a psychologist or was a psychologist is that he grew up, he was dyslexic and he had ADHD and neither of those were diagnosed until he was in at least his twenties. So okay. he like went through high school. I think he started college and then dropped out. And then my grandfather, who I never met, it was like his greatest regret that he hadn't gone to college. And so he was like, as he was literally dying and my dad was a college dropout, he was like, no, like, son, like, I'll be so proud of you. I want you to be happy. Like, get your education, kind of. Maybe I misrepresent that, but yeah, right. And so that's like the picture that I got from my dad. I don't know how true it is. And ultimately he did. And I think the diagnoses made a big difference. So basically my dad in... The 70s and 80s we're talking about. So this is really important, actually. My dad, who had gone to boarding school for high school, so he was okay. he was like, his grandfather had been pretty affluent, if that makes sense. So like, my dad came from a pretty affluent family. He was living with undiagnosed disability. But one of the realities of having a lot of privilege is that you also sometimes get a lot of invisible accommodations. And so right. I know going all the way back that that was happening with my dad. Like, he failed high school French and they were just like, please, we will give you a passing grade if you just like don't take another French class ever. Kind of <laughs> a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. And so so at this point he's made it, he's dropped out of college, he decides to go back, he gets diagnosed, I think somewhere in his twenties, and he's able to get some accommodations to get back to college. And in the eighties, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but I know that he like when I was a kid, he was using early versions of text to speak software. So he had like early oh, cool. versions of dragon, which were not very good at that time. And he was just like, this is the worst thing in the world. But 
so this is another thing that was like kind of going on around me that was normal to me that I had never really thought about. So, yeah. and, and so as I'm going into the gifted program and like trying to make sense of at eight years old of like getting this designation and what it means and getting put in another class, I have my dad who had a really different education experience, but now has a PhD being like, this is just one part of it. Like, everyone's smart at different ways, like trying to really aggressively push back on this narrative that's like, you're, smash- you're special because you're smart. And because he had been diagnosed with ADHD at that time, and he actually was a specialist who worked exclusively with kids with learning disabilities. So that was his entire practice when I was a kid. Okay. And so another thing that that means is that I was like, my parents had split custody. So I lived with my mom and I spent every other weekend with my dad and then he would come take me out on Wednesdays, which was a lot to see a like non-custodial parent but also it meant that like every other weekend at my dad's was like very casual conversation about ADHD all the time the entire culture had like ADHD coping mechanisms that were intentionally built in like lots of list making lots of schedule making like all of this stuff and like they called it the A thing and (laughs) and it would be like whenever in a conversation someone like said a non sequitur it would be like oh that's an A thing where like what was the thread where did that come from so Meanwhile, I'm like being put into a gifted program that I don't know to label as special education. And also I'm like being given all of these coping mechanisms for what's being called, what my dad would call ADHD, but I was never evaluated for. And basically what I can see now from adulthood is that I got a lot, a lot, a lot of coping mechanisms and like invisible accommodations just like built into my entire environment that I couldn't see from a very young age. So, okay, those are two of the three things. And then the other thing that started happening around that age is that my mom was navigating a lot of her own mental health stuff. And so right around the time, kind of around the age between eight and 11 is when I think back to it. I don't want to armchair diagnose or like make meaning of the situation that wasn't there. But the way that I would explain it now is that she was probably processing a lot of trauma that had isolated her from her family. And so... One, I was hearing about a lot more of it than maybe an eight to 11 year old needs to hear. And two, one of the reasons that that matters is that there was a lot of like, I don't know how to characterize this, fluid relationship to reality, I will say. And when you're a kid and someone, and like your main person in your life has a fluid relationship to reality, you don't necessarily have the tools to interpret that critically. And so, this is sounding very familiar to my life experience. Yes, I suspected that it would for a variety of reasons. So that also started around that time. And it was, I, I think, kind of like peaked while I was in middle school during the years that I was in middle school. But okay, so that's like a bunch of stage setting that I didn't have context to even think would be relevant for all of this story the first time that I talked through it. So that's kind of some background about my health as a kid, which is that like, I was probably, I mean, I was almost certainly neurodivergent, but I was in special ed. I was having a lot of body stuff, but all of a sudden I switched to a much better environment. And so my body stuff just didn't seem that critical or it wasn't as disruptive. And I was in an environment where like mental health was tricky. Yeah. Okay. So... So then moving forward, I already talked about a lot of the kind of just anecdotal health memories that I have in episode one, which is like 
I had really bad neck pain when I was a kid and I lived in Canada, so healthcare was socialized medicine, so it wasn't a big deal to go and look into stuff. So I got x-rays, they came back negative. I had a lot of phlegm when I was a kid, like a lot of mucus, that was pretty gross. I got some kind of a GI tract investigation, again, came back pretty normal, we're not worried. When I was 11, this is actually the same week that I got my period is the first time that I, like, on a family hiking trip, kept lying down on the side of the trail and being completely unable to get up. And everybody in the environment thought that it was, like, a mental health thing. So everybody is reading it as, like, what's going on with Brienne? Like, why won't she fight through it? Why won't she just get up? Like, we get it. You didn't want to come on this hiking trip or whatever. But, like stop throwing this temper tantrum, you're going to die in this crater or whatever. Like, it's going to get cold overnight. And I have no idea what I was thinking at the time. I had no words for describing it. I didn't have words for describing it for literal decades. And now I'm like, that was orthostatic intolerance. Like, that was almost certainly POTS. That's exactly what that feels like. So, Mm -hmm. and similarly, like, there was... There's another story that I talked about in episode one in 2015 to just like aggressively jump the gun for a second where I was like, yeah, I was out with my friends and it was late and I just changed a bunch of things about my life. And then I like blacked out on the corner and I've blacked out a lot as a person before, but never like that. And I'm like, that was POTS. That's what that was. Okay. So that's a lot of the stuff when I was Yeah. Like I need to be horizontal right now. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just going to curl up and like we're both horizontal right now as we're talking. So that's relevant. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and another fun fact about me when I was a kid is that I could put each of my feet behind my head and knew that human pretzel style and in fact still can, although I didn't do it the whole time. I just discovered that recently. <laughs> and I also could do all of the splits. So I was a pretty flexible kid and thought of myself as a flexible kid and thought of myself as a kid who bruised easily and thought of myself as a kid who got sick easily. But like, none of those really, I think that was because I was benchmarking against the people around me, but right. still those were like within the normal standard deviation. Okay. So then I think the next major thing was that when I was 16, I got mono. So I was working at a summer camp, which are disgusting. Just like everything about summer camps are disgusting. And I think one of my coworkers had mono. So probably everyone got it, frankly, but different people's immune systems responded differently. So I was like working at the summer camp. I knew that I wasn't doing well. I was getting more and more fatigued beyond what I would already expect for me. So it had already been a problem when I was 16 that like, I have more trouble than other people kind of activating or getting into things, but I think it's because it's some, I think it's because of something underlying in my brain for sure. Like I'm labeling it maybe as depression. I'm honestly not sure. And so I got mono. I went to the walk-in clinic. They were like, Oh, it's probably strep throat. Take these antibiotics and go back to work. So I took a round of antibiotics and went back to work. And then I was just getting worse and worse. And the last week of summer, I like had a fever the whole week it was my kind of week off and it was awful. And then finally I go to my doctor. I was like, well, they gave me some antibiotics. So maybe it's that. And she's like, sure, here's more antibiotics. Um, but she also actually tested me for strep and was like, by the way, that was negative. Come back, please. So she was like, I assume they did blood work for mono, but she was like, you have mono. Your mono is very bad. Like I was, sw- my lymph nodes were so swollen that it was like a straight wall down from my jawline basically i like was extremely inflamed i want to say your spleen is at risk during mono and that was also like 
very tender to the touch and like kind of noticeably inflamed as well so mm-hmm. she was like i need you to stay home for five weeks straight because of how sick you are and then we'll talk and then this is another story about how being in gifted education was invisibly accommodating which is that i missed one of those weeks was a holiday it was the fall break so i missed four straight weeks of school and my high school was self-paced it was like in a completely experimental high school it was a public school free to attend it was the only high school that often offered gifted education so it had like four gift four middle schools with gifted programs streaming into it. Mm-hmm. Plus it had kind of all of the other like alternative ed models that this, that the city was messing with were at my high school. Sure. Or maybe there were two high schools. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it was self-paced is the takeaway that I was trying to say. So I'm really sick. I'm missing all of this school and nobody's talking about holding me back. Like nobody's talking about truancy. Nobody's talking yeah. about any of that stuff. Like, Honestly, the only thing that happened is that my guidance counselor, who was also incidentally a friend of my mother's, was like, hey, do you want to study for the SATs during this break that you have? Because we don't have any college level standardized testing in Canada. Right. She was like, it might just keep your brain busy. So I was like, "Uh, sure. So she gave me an SAT study guide and I literally took the SATs because of that. So so funny. Yeah, just a weird thing that actually kind of majorly impacted my life. Yeah. And at the, and this is in, so based on how old I am, this is in 2003, I want to say. And so the internet didn't, well, the streaming internet didn't exist. So the internet yeah. existed, but there was no streaming television. So I was like watching Murder, She Wrote on in syndication all day. And then maybe I think I got my parents to like get the Sopranos on VHS from Blockbuster, like season by season so that I could watch Mm -hmm. them in order, which is very difficult to do without streaming television. So it was, I know, I know that there are many people who have been sick constantly since then, but it was very different to be sick at home pre-internet. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So then I, I like basically started going back to school and I just kept missing first period. So I found that if my sleep was disrupted, my lymph nodes would always hurt. And I knew that's what it was because they'd been so inflamed So I didn't fully recover, but I recovered enough that I could participate in everything again. And because I had pretty much always been dragging like dysautonomia behind me and all of this shit behind me, I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, this mono was a turning point. I was just like, cool, here's another thing that doesn't work the way that it's supposed to now. So. Yeah, like disease sort of slowly gets normalized. Yeah, yeah. And I was still like, like I think one day I my first period class was calculus and my calculus teacher was like you're falling behind and nobody ever catches up on this class and like if you don't get your act together blah 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 and I like that was the extent of someone being not very nice to me about my health at school which is not very much and I think I went to the resource room crying just from that conversation because I was like yeah I'm trying so hard you know like I'm so sick yeah because like even though it's not like that bad on the scale of possible things that could happen that still like sucks to have a teacher talk to you that way like it really hurts and especially I don't know in my experience like being labeled as gifted means that a lot of your self-esteem gets wrapped up in not just your grades but also how your teachers treat you So to have a teacher suddenly not like you after years of maybe like having so many teachers be like, oh, you know, Brienne is a joy to have in the classroom. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's 
it's a really big hit to your self-esteem. Yeah, and it's like, and there's like all kinds of like weird stuff that I know would get caught up in the way that people were is like, probably everybody in this class is ADHD. So we could schedule our own tests, like self-pacing is really wild. But so Mm -hmm. it's like everybody is already going through this system in really unusual ways. And like, I think probably she had some experiential ideas about like when when students needed like a motivational talk because they hadn't been like they hadn't been continuing to activate but just like that wasn't what was happening at all and and i test well which is like also i think related to all of this stuff like it's not a usable skill but i've always done well on tests so there's never been a like cause for concern if you are a teacher who is evaluated on those things Anyway, so, so that was high school. So pretty good and also relevant, maybe. I have never been very athletic, but I played water polo in high school. So I, not a flexibility store sport, kind of a contact sport, blah, blah, blah. Not super relevant yet, possibly later. So I ended up going to school in the States specifically because I took the SAT. <laughs> I would never have looked, but I have dual citizenship. And when I was looking, my grandpa, who was in his 90s and who was from Iowa, he was like, I think you should consider the college that I went to. And he like, my grandpa's college stories are hilarious because he was like, grew up on a farm in Iowa. Mm-hmm. I want to say that his mom was a German immigrant and maybe, I don't know, I think his dad was just like a longer, ridiculous settler story. But my grandpa ends up going to college and during the depression, he's like, I couldn't pay tuition. So I like rode the train to get there and like dated the Dean's daughter so that I could pay <laughs> tuition late. I'm just like, what? What are you talking about? This is an absurd story in every way. Anyway, I went there for some reason. I was like, well, I took the SATs. I might as well apply to American schools. And if I don't get into any, then no big deal. But yeah, I got in, I ended up going. To U of Iowa? No. So I went to okay. Grinnell College, which is in the oh, okay. middle of Iowa. Yeah. yeah. One of my friends from high school goes there. I asked about U of Iowa because that was one of the three schools that I applied to. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. In the yeah. middle. And like, I feel like Iowa, is it U of Iowa that has like a really good literature grad program? This doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> It was like, I know I was known for its writing programs. So, yeah, so I went to that's why I applied. Yeah. And a lot of people that, that you know have gone there. Like, I feel like a lot of writers that I like, because I always hear about it yeah. in that way. Yeah. But Iowa. Mm-hmm. So I went to college, and my first year of college was, this should have been a sign, but also I, so I was 17 when I started school, just because of, like, when my birthday is and okay. conflicting systems and stuff. I was 17 when I got to college and I could tell my first, so first of all, my first year I drank a lot. I'd been drink. I drank like socially in high school, but not very often and drank socially more in college. And first year, something that I started to notice, but had no language for was that one, I had a lot of like what I would now describe as I had an anxious attachment style. So I would get like really, worked up over communication stuff in a way that was unfamiliar but also what i was more aware of was that this first year of college was and i was living in the dorms was the first time that i had never felt like i was living in the middle of an active crisis right so at home 
that felt like an active crisis all the time, partly because it felt like my mom was navigating an active crisis. Plus, now, probably because most of my friends were all undiagnosed neurodivergent, or most of them Mm -hmm. were, a lot of them also had, like, kind of complicated trauma things going on. And I'm not saying that to say that neurodivergence causes trauma, but I think we know anecdotally that there's a pretty high crossover of navigating the world with an undiagnosed lens that you can't see. So basically, like, everything felt like active crisis all the time in high school because everyone I knew was my own home life was and I didn't have good language for that either because I grew up in the suburbs so I grew up in a pretty well calling it financially stable would maybe be misleading but I grew up in a relatively financially stable environment in the suburbs and my closest friend growing up had like a very financially insecure they moved a lot so I was really really hyper aware of all of the privilege that I did have but I did not have enough context to see that like that doesn't mean that trauma can't happen right like they can coexist. Yes. So I got to college and I was just like melting down a little bit because my nervous system was not stimulated in the way that it was used to being stimulated by crisis. And so mm-hmm. I was like aware of reacting disproportionately to things sometimes or like I could kind of see this happening. But I also was like, okay, like interesting. And also I'm 17, 18, I'm in college. I'm like, whatever, doing doing college things. So that was kind of, I think, like a chapter that I did not talk about as much on the podcast because it has been really, those depths have been plumbed a lot in other projects that I've done is that like that's when mental health and trauma stuff started to kind of take shape for me. Mm -hmm. But things didn't slow down enough to process for like five more years. So my second year of college, my mom was diagnosed with cancer And it was like a skin cancer. They thought it was pretty treatable. They were pretty optimistic, but still not great. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah. So I was like, I think kind of immediately went a little bit more into, I don't even know what to call it now, but coping poorly, I guess. So like the Thanksgiving of my sophomore year, I went home just so that like to do my week of driving my mom to chemo because my sister had already done it kind of like that's what was happening in the non-school side of things. Yeah. And what I think now is I'm like, I think I survived the course load of college because I had gone to a self-paced high school that relied entirely on my own like other coping mechanisms that I had learned because I was incidentally raised in a household Mm -hmm. that was very focused on like... ADHD coping so that was happening and then so my mom was in treatment and I was like drinking a ton and everyone around Mm -hmm. me was drinking a ton so that was not a big deal however most people weren't drinking to black out like three nights a week as far as I was aware and it was like sitting as the kind of thing where I was like that is maybe concerning But it's not the most concerning. Like, it's not what Mm -hmm. I'm the most concerned about. And, like, the fallout, which was always contextually okay. Like, one of my friends Mm -hmm. was like, you know, sometimes you wake up and you don't remember what happened. And it's, like, a shame hangover. It's like, I know exactly what that is. And also, everyone around me is in that same space. And everyone around me is in, like, a perceived safe campus environment where... We're all like, that's okay. This isn't the real world. You know, like, we'll learn to be safe later. 
And then, God, okay, I have to think through this timeline. So, and then my mom went into remission, which was great. But during the same time, my dad had had a head injury and he was like rapidly deteriorating in an unexplained way. And so about six months after my mom went into remission, my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And my parents were divorced. So this is like two separate units. So my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when I was 19. And that did not help in the scheme of like being a functional person who knows how to cope with things. So I was like sophomore year, yeah, still drinking a lot. and And then I started dating this guy who definitely also had a substance abuse problem and other stuff going on. And so the impact of that, which I will mention casually, is that then my junior year, oh God, no, this is, okay. A bunch of things that I didn't even think to talk about on the podcast barely, but now play into this whole story. Well, we'll are about to happen at once. My junior okay. year of college, I was dating this guy who was, who had gone through a lot and was not handling it well, is what I'll say. Yes. And I, and a bunch of my friends were abroad and I fell off my bike. And this is my second bike accident that sent me to the hospital, actually. So I fell off my bike and got a concussion when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I forgot a couple days for a while. And this time I fell off my bike and I think the pedal like tore open my foot because I was biking like literally across the street, like from one campus building to another campus building because I immediately mm-hmm. had to go. To, I was like going from class to eat to work. Yeah. And I, there was just no time. So I was on my bike. And I like went off of the sidewalk and I tried to get back on and I tipped, I was barely moving and the mm-hmm. pedal tore open the side of my foot, like right below my ankle and it was yeah. gross. And this is, maybe this has been talked about before because actually Claire from the, who was in a really early episode of the podcast, who went to college with me, was the first person that I saw. I was like, I just fell off my bike. I haven't looked at it yet. I have this problem where I faint because I just, I had, okay. Right. So I skipped over that part too. So the whole thing where I like went to the ER because I fainted at a back and le- back health lunch and learn, which I talk about in episode 50, had happened like three months previously. So I have literally just been told that the thing where I have triggered fainting is called vasovagal syncope. So I'm like, I have an injury. I think it's gross. I can't look at it because as soon as I look at it, my nervous system is going to freak out. And Claire is like, don't worry, I want to be a doctor, I'll look. So I like lie down on the porch of the student center and like pull up my pant leg. And Claire's like, yeah, you need someone to take care of this. Yeah. So, so like someone from security, I think drives me to the only hospital in town and I get stitches. Mm-hmm. And I basically I had stitches for three weeks or something. And then they told, they told me to get them out after that long. But what happened is it was like, this is going to be gross. Are you re- ready okay. for something slightly gross? <laughs> yeah, no problem. Yeah. So it was like a Y-shaped cut. Embrace. And it had been stitched together in a Y-shaped mm-hmm. manner. And the middle of the triangle of the okay. Y had completely died. So mm-hmm. it was just like a triangle of black oh, no. flesh stitched to this other slightly yeah. dying flesh. So basically, I had to have wound debridement surgery, which I'd never heard before. Okay. But it means like cleaning they had to clean the wound because the first stitches had not worked Um, and nobody had any questions about that i guess they were like yeah i guess this happens sometimes no thoughts so i had surgery like this is the only surgery i've ever had actually i went under they cut away a bunch of tissue restitched it blah 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 so that 
is relevant actually because now I know that poor wound healing is something that people should pay attention to. But at the time I was just mm-hmm. like, well, this sucks. I have the worst luck. Like, why <laughs> do I have such bad luck? What a mystery. Yeah. And so that Halloween, actually, no, this was in November. This extra details that nobody needs. My college had a party in November, like an annual all campus party called fetish, which was what you think. It was just like Halloween yeah. to grosser Halloween, the way that people interpreted it. So I, and at the, the weekend of, maybe I was using a wheelchair for Halloween. I was using a wheelchair for one of these parties. And then maybe this one, I think this is the first one where I was walking again after the surgery. So I was like, I'm mm-hmm. dressed up. I'm participating in the party. And unfortunately, this guy that I had been dating who had a lot of shit going on, we had just broken up and he was not handling it well and he had had too much to drink. And so I walked into the party and he, immediately after I walked into the room, he attacked somebody that he didn't know, just like spontaneously attacked somebody basically. Holy shit. And he, his, this is, this story is ludicrous. And he had been wearing a belt around his neck as part of his costume because okay. his costume was autoerotic asphyxiation. All right. And so he took the belt off and like, that's how he went after this guy. And oh my so God. I walked into the, I walked into the room. This happened. I'd been drinking. He'd been drinking significantly more. We weren't like yeah. together either romantically or socially in this moment. Like it, it sure. I don't don't know how that kind of timing worked out, but yeah, you were just both separately drunk. Yeah. Both separately drunk. And like, maybe I was the catalyst or maybe it was a complete coincidence. I literally have no idea, but Mm -hmm. I like see this happen. I am somebody who, even if it didn't have anything to do with me, like immediately runs the other way from fights because I'm afraid I'm going to pass out. Yeah. And so it was deescalated very quickly, but I like went, outside I panicked threw my wallet in the trash and then like went and sat somewhere until I saw somebody that I knew like completely mm-hmm. completely a mess and so that like more or less ended up resolving Based like the longer version of the story is that he ended up leaving campus but I okay so my foot recovers I'm like living my life again but when he came back to campus I started having nightmares so, and they were like, really like, okay, subconscious, I get it. So yeah. the first one, and I don't remember my dreams very often. So that's also significant. Like I'm not having weird dreams all the time. I like never have dreams. And so I had dreams like, and they were just all like him perpetuating violence. So I was like, you know what? I should take some action about this. Like this isn't a healthy thing going on. And this was my senior year of college. So at this point I was like, I recognize that perhaps I have not been coping with some of the difficulties in my life in healthy ways and I would like to take action. So I go to the student mental health center and I'm like, hey, I've been having nightmares about my ex-boyfriend because I saw him attack somebody and I thought maybe you could help me with that. And she was like, yeah, that does sound tough. (laughs) It was just like everything that I said, she just like affirmed. I was like, Mm -hmm. okay, I can tell that your treatment is in affirming people, but I'm not confident that that's what I need right now. And in retrospect, I'm like, also, if somebody comes to you telling you that they witnessed a traumatic event and started having nightmares, then maybe you should talk to them about PTSD. Yeah. Perhaps. Seems Um, like something to bring up. Yeah. So, but I didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So that, and then what's happening with my body. And then my body is otherwise like, 
the same. So I can't stay up all night or I'm in pain. Like all of the stuff that I think I talked about, I've talked about in other episodes, but like pretty static. And then I went, I went straight to grad school because basically, the way that I would describe it now is that basically I was just like in constant fight or flight mode all the time. And I was like, how am I going to make decisions about my life? Like my dad is dying right now. I am not going to go home and go back to the restaurant job that I worked last summer, not because restaurant jobs are bad, but because I will lose it on somebody. Like I am not in a place where I can go back and like work full time in the service industry without something really terrible happening probably. So I'm going to just delay my return to the real world for a couple more years. And so I applied to grad school and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life at all. And I was like, well, when I was younger, I wanted to be an architect. I should do that. So I applied to architecture school and I got into Michigan, which was one of the, which was a good program. So I went and I took out a bunch of loans because I was like, this is what everybody does. Like, let's get into tons of debt to get a graduate degree because of course a graduate degree will put me into a profession where I will earn money to pay back the debt. The classic promise of education. Mm-hmm. And so while I was in grad school, my dad died, which okay. was hard, of course. And it also, the program itself was really intensive. So I now know that like architecture is a really hazing kind of field. like. Yeah. needlessly like it has a lot mm-hmm. of professors telling you you should never sleep again if you really care about it and if you go yeah. into the profession the intern years are very similar and it's like I don't think that it's appropriate or understandable in medicine but in medicine you're like well maybe doctors need to perform in these mm-hmm. extreme conditions in an emergency which I do not mean to say flippantly because we're living through yeah. an emergency now and like I don't think training prepared anyone and it's showing us that it's just hazing. Yeah. And then in architecture, that excuse doesn't exist because there's no reason yeah. for architects the, to be The stakes are not that high. No. Yeah. My um, mom dropped out of architecture school for that same reason. Yeah. It's, I had no idea. It's bananas. It's yeah. very intense. So I was in architecture school and I was not staying up all the time the way that everyone else was. And I had like a pretty bad episode of like a couple weeks of vertigo and also my dad died in the middle so I was just not coping very well but again like I think I think that the reason that I was able to finish is that I had like that was the one thing that I like courses in school were like the thing that I had learned how to completely tune out for and like do but it was taking its toll like at the summer after the first year I think I was like really basically bed bound for two months but I thought that I was just a depressed person who hated myself. Like, I was like, uh, what are you doing? You could just get out of bed and choose to cook. And that's not what you're doing. And of course I was grieving. So then my mental health really was not great. And so, and then like, it was the same. I think I worked my seat, my third year of grad school, my thesis year, I was in school and then I was working in a restaurant three like three shifts a week but I think it was I was working Saturday night so I was like yeah telling myself I was in a lot of pain all the time I would not have called it pain because I've been in pain forever and just was like oh it's hard to have a body and I after I finished I moved to Toronto with my 
college boyfriend. So we'd been together since I think my junior year of college and we lived in an arbor together and then we moved to Toronto together. And it was like, once we got to Toronto, I had enough savings from the restaurant that I was not feeling panicked for at least a couple months. So I was like, okay, I'll look for a job and I'll rest. And it was like, same story again, just like for a couple months getting off the couch was basically impossible. And then slowly I would get back to a place where I was like able to go for walks or go for runs or like go to Starbucks and I don't know how I was explaining that to myself. Like, honestly, I know what I don't. I think I was calling it all mental health. And one of the things about my mom's mental health was that, like, for a long time, she would explain this kind of stuff and say that I had been possessed. She was like, it's not Brian's fault. Brian's possessed. Like, she doesn't mean it. Like, we just have to. It's not really associated with theology, so I can't explain it that way. But it's like, yeah that's in there like there's some negative energy and if we can just get the negative energy out then you'll be able to go back and do your thing and so that was like a really foundational concept and also when i was little because i was in so much pain like i had been to see a chiropractor i had seen multiple chiropractors many times i had seen kind of miscellaneous other bodywork people i had seen like all of the stuff all of the weird stuff i had been doing and so a lot of like kind of woo woo I don't even know what to call it, was, was like in the space and a lot of toxic posi- positivity, basically. Yeah. So I'm like in Toronto, finally, 20, I'm like 25. I got a job that started part time. And then it was at a co-working space. So I was working from home a little bit and I was working in a co-working space a little bit. And I hadn't even looked for architecture jobs because I was like, I couldn't hack the hours. Yeah. Me, a regular healthy person who just can't hack the hours and has to accept that about herself as a character flaw question mark like yeah it all makes sense so far right mm-hmm. i uh 20 something in the prime of my life just can't work this job yeah yeah so i was you know i'm 25 i've already determined not to pursue architecture because i know that the hours won't work for me and that's because i'm spoiled i guess and just don't want to give up my leisure time Mm -hmm. so anyway I start this job and the situation of it ended up being really great for me for all of those reasons and I talked about this a lot I think in episode one too so because I was in a co-working space I worked there for five years and I could lie down all the time I worked lying down at least 50% of the time and it was no big deal and this I think about a lot as it relates to gifted education, which is that like mm-hmm. co-working spaces are a really specific kind of space targeting really specific kinds of people and companies and workers. And a lot of them are trying to mirror the environments of tech companies. So yeah. at the time that I started that job, like one of my friends had just started working for Google. And so like I've, I've been on the Google campus in San Francisco, not in San Francisco, but in Mountain View. And like been around there like i know what they're up to and you can see it you're like oh yeah. you have snacks everywhere you have healthy snacks and fun snacks you have activities you have massage like you can tell what they're doing which is like you're making your workers as comfortable as possible so that they never leave yeah. and co-working spaces aren't quite the same but they're like employing a lot of the same things to basically blur work-life boundaries but yeah the other impact of that is that they're accommodating a lot of people without calling it that yeah so it was like, oh, cool. Like I can, uh, for me, it was that I can lie down all the time. I think for a lot of people, like at Google, it's like, I don't have to prepare my own food. If I didn't have to yeah. prepare my own food, my life would be a lot easier and I could work more. Like, yeah, for sure. 
the trade-offs are obvious when you're Google and all of a sudden they're not obvious when you're trying to come up with like support net, care net, what's the word? Social safety net. (laughs) When you're trying Mm -hmm. to come up with a social safety Um, net, all of a sudden all of these concepts are completely mysterious. But yeah, I basically think that I got to like half of this story is how I got to maintain my denial for so long. And I got to continue to maintain my denial, I think because I had a job where I could lie down all the time. And it was only a 40 hours a week job anyway. Like I was never working after five or if I was, it was a special occasion. Like a lot of things about it. It also started at $12 an hour. So I wasn't like, not that that architects make a lot of money, but I wasn't like making architecture money in this job, but Mm. I was like pretty functional. Yeah. So continuing to be in denial. And so I got pretty stable at that point. So kind of there was like a little bit more disruption. My boyfriend and I broke up. I So I had to move. And we broke up because I was like, I think I'm a mess. <laughs> like <laughs> like he, was in gra- he was in grad school then. And he, mm-hmm. I think, went home for spring break or something. And it was like, I went out and did some stuff when he wasn't there. And I was like, yeah. I haven't been doing anything. Like I'm yeah. not functional. I'm not functional and you are supporting me in ways that we're not like seeing or acknowledging. Like we're not calling mm-hmm. this a caretaker dynamic, but yeah. it is. And like, I don't want to be non non-consensual is the wrong word because he was not like non that it yeah. wasn't directional, but like mm-hmm. there wasn't an agreement. We had never created an agreement that this was going to be yeah. dynamic and it was just kind of happening. And on top of that, like, yeah, just all of it. It was happening. And so yeah. he went home and I was like, okay, when I like have to take care of myself, I don't really do it better, but I'm like pushing myself better and I'm confronting some different things. And ultimately, like, I think we have to break up because I don't think that I'm going to get myself together, whatever that looks like in the context of this relationship. And that's not you and it has nothing to do with you. So... so it was like, we broke up. I moved into the new person. I was now working a full-time job, like in an environment, in a co-working space where there were lots of people and like interesting Mm. young people who were doing things so it was a really good transition time and I ended up through the context of this co-working space starting a writing group because I was like basically what was happening at that point of the like I don't have any of the language for anything that's going on is it's like I like woke up at 3 a.m with like paragraphs like cycling through my brain that are just narrative paragraphs and I'm like fuck I need to write this down so I'd like wake up in the middle of the night and write a personal like a deeply personal essay about miscellaneous trauma and be like okay getting it out helped good note but I was like what the hell am I gonna do with this because it's like about you know like my mom thought that I was possessed or like my mom thought that all of my friend's parents were in cults because that was a part of her whole thing and that was messed up and I couldn't talk about it. Or like when my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and I was 19, like I didn't know anybody who had been through that and I didn't know how to talk about it. And so I started a writing group basically on that pitch at the co-working space. I was like, hello, do you write about things that you can't talk about with anybody because they're too personal? Come to my writing group. And some people did. And so it, it kind of evolved and then we ended up starting an event in Toronto called Stories We Don't Tell, which isn't happening right now because of the pandemic, but was still like is still an entity. So it ran for five years and basically I was there for the first two. So I did a year of writing group and then two years of stories we don't tell. And whew, okay. And while I was doing that, 
because I was one of the co-founders, I told a story almost every month because we'd have to round out the line, the lineup. So we were bringing, like yeah. new people came in, new people wanted to participate, but new people are not used to like turning around really personal stories in two weeks. Yeah. So we were just like trying to pat it until people were ready. And so I did something almost every week, no, sorry, almost every month for two years. Like wow. I did at least 15 to 20 events and it was therapy. Like that wasn't yeah. the point, but I had, I've like, glossed over a couple other times that I went to try to see therapists and I just had the same outcome. Yeah. Me being like, I think I'm a mess. And then being like, good for you. <laughs> this isn't <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I'd be like, I think I need to deal with this. And they'd be like, yeah, like you've right. I'd be like, okay, if this is what therapy is, and I know it isn't always, but like, if yeah. this is what therapy is, they do not need to pay for it. I'm sorry. And so I think, for me, I kind of stumbled onto this thing that had a really, really profound effect on my trauma processing that I didn't, inte- like that wasn't intentional and that I wasn't even fully aware of at the time. But, oh, I also, at the same time, right after I moved to Toronto, I went no contact with my mom. So okay. Will and I broke up. I stopped talking to my mom and I was like in this new job doing in this new context. So so I was like, okay, I'm just going to get through it. And the idea, like, this was the intention of the stories we don't tell. But it was like, once you've talked about some of this stuff in front of a room full of people, and the room, like, the audience is designed in such a way that, like, you can see people, you're not lit out, all, like, whatever, whatever. But, like, you yeah. realize that afterwards you're still a person and nobody hates you. And it, like, has this really yeah. good feedback effect if some of the gremlins in your brain tell you that talking about the tough stuff will make everybody hate you because it'll it, like you're too much. Right. So it, I don't know, over the course of like three years, it had a huge impact on kind of all of that stuff. And one of the biggest things like is even with alcohol. So I did not make any conscious effort to change anything. I think because I was still like functioning enough mm-hmm. that I wasn't the biggest fire but one of the impacts of just doing this yeah. is I was still drinking socially all the time and I almost never blacked out anymore and I was like that's weird like I can tell that I'm yeah. not doing better but like why would that be the case like I have a few ideas but I was just kind of aware of it and I was like hmm, okay like maybe previously I had been like cool I need to stop that completely and Substances are so complicated because we all have different relationships to them. But for me, I was like, oh, after yeah. a couple of years, for me, I can see really clearly that alcohol wasn't the problem. <laughs> like something else yeah. is the problem. And when I drank, I, of course, like it's a coping mechanism. I'm numbing. So like mm-hmm. whatever's going on in there, I'm like gesturing vaguely at my brain gremlins take over. So that was, so this is when I was like 27, 28. This is like the, the pinnacle of my most functional time so all of a sudden my mental health is really great I still don't have language for like why it may have improved or why it may have been suffering previously Mm -hmm. but like I can just tell and I'm really busy I've become more active some of that was also coping mechanisms was like okay I have to get I have to find ways to get myself out of the house I'm a routine person I was volunteering I was doing a lot honestly I was doing a lot, and whenever I thought about it, I had, like, crushing anxiety about when there would be time for rest in my week. But I was like, hmm, that's weird. Maybe other people are also burning out, but everyone else was fine. So, 
That was around 27 or 28. And then that's when I think the next catalyst is that I moved into a moldy apartment. So I was living in a basement that was fine, like a basement with no windows in the main living area at all. And one small window in my bedroom that I almost certainly could not have escaped through and was definitely an illegal apartment. Yep. (laughs) Great times. In that apartment, I wasn't really aware of anything. And I moved into a new above ground apartment. It was bigger. Like everything about it was great. And there was like a gross patch on the bathroom wall that was obviously mold that had been painted over. But Mm -hmm. I was like, whatever, like this is what it's like to, I lived in, still in Toronto. So this is like what it's like to live in an apartment in a city if you can't afford like the fanciest condos available, new construction, which Mm -hmm. frankly also I think are probably environmental pits a lot of the time. But, but I was like, no big deal. If it was a problem, someone would have done something about it already. Like, I don't know what I thought. Yeah. But I got eczema right away. And so I talk a lot about this in episode one, too. But the eczema was the first thing for me that was, like, the beginning of the cannot come back from decline. As opposed to the, like, ignore everything and keep going, which had been working for me so far, as far as these things go. With at least three periods of spending many weeks in bed that I'm not kind of thinking of as a pattern. So I did the eczema and then I changed my diet, yeah. which I talked about a lot. I did the candida diet. It made my eczema go away. But removing alcohol, removing caffeine, removing sugar from my system was uh, like hard hit. And so I couldn't push through anymore. It was like I did the diet. The eczema went away. I, I started reverting to what is like, I just saw the word chronotype. Did you see this floating around Twitter? The concept of chronotypes? No. So it's basically like there's a natural deviation in our, what's the word, our rhythms when we, Mm -hmm. circadian rhythms. And so like, and those are chronotypes. So like my natural chronotype basically is like go to bed at 7 p.m. and wake up at 5 a.m. That's what my body prefers. Uh, And so I started waking up earlier after I changed this diet. So I started going to bed earlier and I felt really good if I stayed exactly in the pattern, which is not possible when you're really busy. So I basically just like felt great for a couple months. I started a new job. It was an actual nine to five job, sit at a desk the whole time. And that was okay for a while. And I just like deteriorated from there, basically. So I got more and more exhausted. I was getting just like getting worse and worse in other ways, but my skin was better. And now in retrospect, I'm like, that was mold. I moved into a moldy house later, which was when things got really, really bad. But basically that entire period. So I'm going to do a quick list summary because I talk about it so much in episode one. But it was like eczema, diet, crushing fatigue and possible like orthostatic intolerance episodes. And then antifungal prescription treatment that was actually pretty effective and brought me back for a while. And then we moved into a moldy house again. And I became completely bedbound, stopped working, could barely converse, pretty much lost my mobility, recovered, like left that house, incredibly was able to do that, like had a ton of support for this part, left that house, recovered. And that's kind of where things were when we recorded, when I recorded episode 50. So now I look back at this entire time and I'm like, that sounds like it might be a mast cell problem. Yeah. Because... One, mold, huge mast cell trigger, hugely correlated with EDS turning into ME, which I 
I, I like knew, I certainly had heard of chronic fatigue syndrome. 2017 is when I probably first saw the words Emmy. I had not, I hadn't even looked about it. Like since I was a teenager, I'd always been like, well, maybe I have chronic fatigue syndrome, but everything I know about it tells me that if I say that people will just be mean to me. So I'm not yeah. going to worry about it. So, so yeah. So like mold, the diet thing. I'm also like, that sounds probably, I moved into a moldy apartment. The mold mm. tipped my hist, like overflowed my histamine bucket. So I started to get eczema. I changed my diet, which like reduced the overall load, but things were still messed up because I was still like in a direct exposure situation. That's what I think now. And similarly in the other house, I'm like, yeah, that was a toxic mold exposure. And probably that caused a like mass cell cascade type thing. Mm -hmm. So that's my reinterpretation of those events. And then after that, I, we moved to Massachusetts. We live in an old house that is like so old it's plaster, which can't grow mold. So Ah. it is not perfect, but it's, I don't know. So far, the biggest thing that I'm aware of now is when I have really bad fatigue when I'm here, it's all like, dysautonomia fatigue which is like orthostatic intolerance and it's not like my brain is filled with bees and doesn't work fatigue which i've now associated with a histamine reaction because when i lived in the mold house i couldn't my brain was filled with bees all the time and i just called that fatigue but now i'm like oh that's a different thing okay so then in massachusetts i was the first time that i ever got like real medical care i would say honestly despite the story being entirely about pursuing medical care and so in episode 50, I t- that's all I talk about, but I found out I have cervical stenosis. I found out I have small fiber neuropathy. I found out I have, I confirmed that I have POTS. I already knew at that point. Mm. And that, so that was at this time last year, which is when that episode recorded. So good. We've been talking for an hour and I have just brought us up to the last recorded part of the story. And so what has happened since then is that I... Went to see a physiatrist to ask about my cervical stenosis. And she was just like, paint, like, if you want pain management, you're weak. And if you don't want pain management, there's something else we can do for you. She didn't say it in those words, but that was the takeaway. Yeah. Because I was like, I just want to know if this is degenerative, what I should keep an eye on. And if there's like anything mm-hmm. that I could be doing. And she's like, well, here's some really terrifying side effects of pain management that would make your life worse if you want to try it. I was like... <laughs> That's not what I asked Word. you. She's like, yeah, she's like, you know, we can do like a nerve block, but because it's neck pain, like because it's in your neck, here are all the consequences. And I was like, one, this is a weird way to deliver it anyway, because if I weren't never yeah. in enough pain that I needed a nerve block, like, do you think that this is helpful? And two, I'm not, yeah. and I didn't ask about it. So I don't know why you went there. Like, yeah, both sides aren't great. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then... So I saw her, blah, blah, blah. And so that was kind of a dead end. And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to wait until the sp- like next summer and just try to decide what to do. Because I'm not doing great, but I don't have an overarching diagnosis. And like, I don't, I just don't know how to plan for the future, basically. Like, yeah. I'm avoiding mold. I eat a weird diet. I rest a lot. And like, I was pretty functional last fall. I talked about this. I would go, like, I was going to the gym to use the recumbent mm-hmm. bike. So that's pretty good. Just leaving the house you know (laughs) yeah and I so that was kind of my plan and then obviously life got in the way so in actually over Christmas I went back to Canada it was after Christmas for a funeral at the end of December 
and I picked up a bug. So Adam and I both got a virus in late December and we were kind of like just a mess for two weeks. We didn't get sick until we got back, but like two days after we got back, we just both had fevers for like a week and then we both had, I forget the trajectory, but so we were sick at the beginning of the year and I started to fall behind on the podcast at that time because of that. But then in January, 2020, I was like, that's fine. I have the rest of 2020 to get my life together. So no big deal. Mm -hmm. And then I did a Ted talk in February, which now feels like it happened like on another planet, but yeah. I've recovered enough from the virus that I could do that, which I'd already committed to. But I, cause I was like, what am I going to go? Am I going to sit? I'm like, how am I going to do it? And I ended up doing it standing because I have a lot of nervous energy and I don't like talking while yeah. seated. And then of course COVID happened. So I think this is one of the things I know from Twitter that it's affected a lot of us and kind of, Obvious, like in obvious ways, which we don't need to talk about right now because there's, I'm working on a project and like there are plenty of project projects that are about sharing those stories. But obviously, we've been, a lot of us have been affected very directly because we're at high risk and it has all of these implications. But also, a lot of us have been affected indirectly. I've discovered just because of the elevated stress levels. Yeah. So, I think I did a Twitter poll about it in like May. <laughs> And so many people were like, I've been in a flare since it started. No, I don't have COVID. Yeah. And so the way that that looked for me is that I was like stressed and hyperfunctioning at the beginning being like, okay, cool. Like I'll just stay informed and like make sure that I can like help people and make the right choices. Mm -hmm. And what happened for me in March is that the pattern of being like, I have this underlying health problem that I don't know what it is. And so I have to make different risk, like risk assessments than other people. And then other people being like, your risk assessments aren't necessary. Turned out to be hugely triggering. And I don't think I'm, I don't know if I'm like explaining the dynamic well, but hopefully like most people know kind of what I mean. It's just people want to blur over health boundaries for most of us in our regular lives. And all of a sudden the entire media narrative is about that is like about yeah. how how we're disposable but also how like us wanting to take precautions was offensive to other people and so at this point at the age of 33 i was like oh i noticed that i am behaving as if i'm in fight or flight mode like i'm in a trauma activation cycle my amygdala is like firing that's the wrong mm -hmm. word to use but that's fine and so i was like, okay, just like breathe, wait it out, you know what it is. And I also, and because, okay, this is, there's like a couple steps to this. So the first thing is that obviously this was not a new feeling. I've had it and I used to have it all the time. But when I lived that way all the time, I didn't like identify it because it was all the time. And when it started to come down, that was one of the things that I noticed was like when I was doing stories on hotels, still living in Toronto, blah, blah, blah. And I was starting to stabilize, like my mental health was starting to stabilize. I was like, whenever I hear from my mom, so if she texts me or if she emails me and we had been no contact, but still some, you know, things happen, I would immediately like switch realities is the only way I knew how to describe it at that time. So I'd like see my mom's name in my inbox and the rest of the day, I thought that all of my friends hated me. I thought like everything, whole thing. And I'd be like, yep. And so in my early twenties, I didn't see it at all. That was just like, how I was all the time. 
And then in my late 20s, because I had been no contact and because I had apparently succeeded, succeeded, that's the wrong word, but like managed to process some trauma, it became more clear because it was not a regular pattern. So I could like tell that something was happening. And it would, and it was the same even like, you know, I'd hear from my mom and then I'd start picking a fight with Adam. And then I'd be like, why are we fighting about this? Like, I don't want to be the couple, kind of couple who fights about whatever, like, what, what, whether or not we should already be watching the movie that we agreed on together. Like, like it would be stuff that I knew I didn't want to be fighting about, but I had clearly picked the fight. And I was like, oh, those are connected. Like, I don't know what it is, but those are connected. And so this year in March, I was like, yeah, I think of it as like amygdala hijacking. I've read significantly more about trauma than I had five, 10 years ago, but I was talking about it on Twitter and someone was like, that sounds like an emotional flashback. And I was like, excuse me? (laughs) And like, this is one of many stories that are like, I knew all of the setup for this information, which is that like, I knew that flashbacks aren't the way they look in movies. I I knew all of that. But Mm -hmm. I still was like, that's not me. Like, I grew up in the suburbs. It wouldn't, it would be like offensive for me to use that language. Yeah. And then I was like, that's exactly what that was. And that's what, not all of those, but like many of those were. Those were emotional flashbacks. Like, that's a hallmark of, 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 and like, I know that the terminology on this is kind of disputed, but that's a hallmark of CPTSD specifically. Yeah. And like generational trauma. And so, all of those concepts that at this point I've been like thinking about for at least five years. I'm like, okay, no, I have not pursued therapy since April, but like maybe those labels are actually really appropriate and it would not be, I don't know what, like uh, appropriation to use them given all of these things. I mean, also even I feel like, because terms like that have been appropriated so much. Even though I, like, personally am like, yes, I have PTSD. Like, I have a paper diagnosis of PTSD, which I don't even, I don't know. I feel very strongly that, like, self-diagnosis is enough for someone to use terms. But, like, no one can argue that I would be appropriating those terms. Like, I recently was like having just like basically the the movie version of a flashback and i turned to margo and i was like i'm having forced recaps <laughs> this other way more casual thing not yeah. a deal just because like i just i hear the word flashback and i just associate it with people like, I don't want to use the word appropriating, but like diminishing. Yeah, like, there's like, like invalidating. It's like PTSD when people language. Use health language euphemistically is kind of how yeah. Think of it. Yeah, like they don't they don't mean they know that they're not talking about it. It's not like yeah. when people think that they're using it, but they're using it wrong. It's when people yeah. are like trying to make it a point. And they're exaggerating by Mm -hmm. using these, like, health or mental health terms as a euphemism. Yeah. Something like that, right? Yeah. Like, when people, like, I don't know, walk into a Starbucks where they got the wrong order one time and they're like, oh, I'm having flashbacks. Like, no. You're not. And you know you're not. Yeah. Um, And, like, also that we do 
that's a specific thing. But like that we do also separately have like a connotation for the word flashback that really is about memory. Yeah. Like that's not associated with trauma. Mm-hmm. Which like so it's when people are kind of trying to like joke that something was traumatic by invoking mm-hmm. trauma language is really different than when someone is literally like, I haven't been here in a long time and I'm having yeah. flashbacks to other times that I've been here memory. Just like Yeah, because there's also time. like there's two film constructions of a flashback like there's a movie about someone with ptsd where all of a sudden they are literally in vietnam again yes and then there's just you know a narrative movie where you know a person just goes back into their childhood home and remembers something and we are shown this memory yes so I don't like using the word flashback either. Yeah, it's not for the like for stuff around trauma. It just doesn't end. Yeah, it ends up not evoking what it actually is somehow, yeah. kind of. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm like, right. So that's that's. It's not inappropriate to use that language for these things. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's of, not inappropriate, but it can also sometimes just feel wrong in a way that's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, and I also it's interesting because as we are about to pivot to, like, I feel this way about self-diagnosis related to physical health too. Like mm-hmm. I am 100% in favor of it. And also I totally have a lot of my own like hangups about it internally. Okay. So March, so I had what I now believe I had a like kind of intense emotional flashback that seamlessly segued into two panic attacks in 48 hours. So I just was really running on empty for at that time and as I know a lot of people were because the world was really really hard all of a sudden and it's like I was one having the I was the flashback was definitely triggered by that kind of stuff in my interpersonal dynamics of just being like oh my god I now think that I have one a ton of trauma from everything that I just a ton of I don't mean to be exaggerated but like trauma from the things that I've just talked about and also the through line of having grown up in a disabled body that was not acknowledged as a disabled body and yeah. that was the one that felt like it got hit this time and that's the one that's felt like it's gotten hit quite a few times over the last few months but um, so yeah so that's so I was like kind of in that place late April or sorry late March early April where I was like really just trying to be so nice to myself because I could tell like that it it just like hadn't come down from that yet basically and then on Easter weekend Adam's family did like they normally have an Easter dinner together and so they did a call they did like a zoom call and I didn't sleep very well the night before, like really poorly. And I knew, so we had already made it clear that I might not be able to join because I was like, yeah. I can't do group chats in this state, but I'll try to say hi. And then I slept really poorly. So I really knew that I shouldn't have done it, but I hadn't had major fallout from something like this before. So I was like, right. you know what? I'm going to go on the call for like five minutes just to say hi to everybody. And then I'll go lie down. And that was a really, really big mistake. So... I, we were like on a couch, Adam had the computer, I was just sitting beside him and I was kind of slouched down and then I started slouching more and then I started twitching and then I started twitching a lot and I'm like doing this thing that I always do when my brain's not working, which is like, just be casual. Like I don't have enough brain function to like think through what I'm supposed to do or set boundaries. So apparently my brain defaults to just like get as comfortable as possible and wait for it to end which is a bad strategy. 
So after a couple of minutes, I was really just in bad shape, twitching a lot. So I went and laid down on the bed. I just kind of listened. And I have not recovered from that episode. So, and I think like using the word twitching overstates it. I don't know. I think they're fasciculations. I don't even know if that's how you pronounce it. But like, it's involuntary movement. It's for, for me, it's like my whole torso was shaking uncontrollably, basically. Yeah. And I could feel it as exhaustion. And sensory overload gets much worse so i think that was also it. it was like trying to listen and parse a call in that state was yeah extremely unwise mm-hmm. yeah so i that night i like tried i didn't know that i had made a huge mistake yet i thought i had made a regular mistake that night i tried to brush my teeth and i couldn't stand up straight because i was like i felt like i had i was like a dog wagging my tail like my entire torso was involuntarily like just like wagging yeah. back and forth. I was like, that's not normal. And now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, both of my SI joints were out. What was happening is that neither of my SI joints were doing, and like yeah. none of the muscles that are supposed to support, just that whole system was breaking down. Mm-hmm. So I was wobbling from the SI joints. And then, so I was like, I tried to brush my teeth, couldn't do it standing, switched to brushing my teeth in bed immediately, which I hadn't needed to do in quite a while. It was like, the next morning, I was like, cool, I'll sleep it off. So the next morning, I get up and try to go about my normal life, which is, like, not a healthy person's normal life. But, like, yeah. there's – I've gotten some amount of function back compared to other situations. So I, like, get up, go downstairs to make my coffee, and that was a mistake, too. Like, I don't get all the way through it, I think. Or if I did, I was, like, twitching really heavily at the end, and I was like, that's not safe for me anymore. Mm-hmm. Because if I'm pushing my body to failure, then I'm going mm-hmm. – to keep failing like so I basically not that I had a choice really but put myself on bed rest for until that got better and it hasn't so I'm okay that's it's improved so I was on bed rest and in that time my SI joints were a mess and they were also in a lot of pain and I was heating them a lot Uh, and I rolled over in my sleep one night and I heard my shoulder pop and my shoulder already like is not a happy shoulder. It's been an unhappy shoulder for years. It's really painful when I drive, when my elbow's not supported, because it just feels like it's Mm -hmm. hanging from the joint. And as I'm saying this now, I'm like, huh, what an interesting (laughs) combination of words that I was literally making the podcast as I was describing myself that way. Me, interviewing many hypermobile people about their ligament Mm -hmm. laxity. Me, with my hanging shoulder. Like, huh, what a strange unrelated issue that maybe I'll mention to someone someday. Mm-hmm. So I dislocated my shoulder, but I didn't know because I'd been living with a lot of shoulder pain for years, yeah. but it was worse. And it popped back in a couple days later, at which point I was like, oh, that was a dislocation. <laughs> and because of Twitter, of course, I, I had been like talking more about it and been like, oh, a lot of people who are hypermobile don't know that they're hypermobile like it's actually not obvious it's not obvious that you could even be having subluxations and not realizing it and i think like tell me if you relate to this but like when i when i had heard people describing these before both in interviews and on twitter because people talk about it on twitter all the time like oh that Mm -hmm. sounds like a really serious thing that happens to other people yeah nodding (laughs) yeah i went to school with this girl who her shoulders would pop out all the time and now when I think about her, I'm like, oh, maybe I should reach out to Michelle and be like, hey, by the way, look into EDS, maybe. Yeah. But she used to talk about it all the time. Like, oh, my shoulder popped out. I just have to pop it back in. It's fine. 
And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess if that happened to me, I would know because Michelle knows when it happens to her. Yeah. And, you know, apparently not. Nope. Not at all. So I did that. And then I also like, in the same week as my shoulder had been dislocated, I like knocked my jaw while I was laughing or something. And I I, like felt it. It didn't fully dislocate, but I definitely subluxed it because it was like out of Mm -hmm. alignment for a few hours, I want to say. And then I was like, oh, I've done that before. And I remembered that, like, when I was in high school, this is such a me story. So I laugh with my mouth really wide open all the time. And I used to get made fun of about that in high school, which is pretty benign. But I covered my mouth when I laughed. And so I was laughing, which meant that I was, like, shaking. And I went Mm -hmm. to cover my mouth. And I just, like, hit myself in the face Mm -hmm. and presumably subluxed my jaw. But I was like, oh, it feels like my jaw is out of the joint. But if it were dislocated, I would know. So I'm just running yeah. around telling everybody that my jaw is out of alignment, but it's no big deal because I'm all, like in high school already great at that. And so then I start to be like, oh, oh, there's like a couple a couple Twitter conversations where I'm like, oh, and then this with my shoulder. I'm like, oh, my God, I've had a pro- I've had ligament laxity in my shoulder for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And my shoulder is much worse than any of my other joints. Which the only thing that that I can connect it to is probably water polo because I played goalie and mm. I played six or seven seasons and I wasn't good, to be clear. I was a bad athlete, but I have a good throwing arm. And I'm like, oh, I bet throwing a lot, like, it's not heavy, but the action of like throwing yeah. a ball 20 meters all the time is pro. I was probably hyperextending my shoulder all the time. That's probably why I was good yeah. at it. And I probably have like ongoing use issue repetitive whatever Mm. repetitive motion injury i forget i feel like it doesn't matter repetitive strain people yeah (laughs) that's the one so so that so i was like okay and somebody when i first got sick in the mold house and i was trying to figure out like just figure out what's going on and i was getting nowhere with doctors and my doctor was being really unhelpful and i talk about this in episode one somebody Mm. in my alumni group had been like my sister was just diagnosed with EDS. Like, you should look into that. Could that be it? Mm-hmm. She had a really frustrating experience, too. So we Google it, and I probably ended up on, like, the Mayo Clinic website. Like, you know, it's a pretty generic. Yeah. And I read it. And some of them I was like, huh, maybe? But not enough of them. And and some, yeah. so many of them are subjective, right? Like, do you have stretchy skin? Do you have velvety skin? And you're like, yeah. I don't. I have the skin that I've had my whole life. I don't know what skin's supposed to feel like. Mm-hmm. But then... And, and this is also, so I've read this like two years ago. I'm like, maybe, but probably not. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I am hypermobile because of this history of flexibility, because of these injuries. Like that was probably a dislocation, but I don't want to call it that because of my appropriating dislocation language. Like, yeah. Sincerely. Mm-hmm. And so I, I started looking at it more seriously. At some point I checked my Baton score, which I'd known about the Baton scale for at least two years at this point finally check it and I never checked because I can't touch the floor because my hamstrings are so tight so I was like well I can't do that one so if I can't do that one why would I check any of the other ones <laughs> yeah which is really not logical so anyway I have a Baton score of five which is the lowest qualifying score for my age now it's because I could like I can touch both my wrists with my thumbs I can both my elbows bend backwards one of my knees bends backwards one of the other one-offs I forget and like I have the little like heel papules like some of the smaller stuff yeah plus 
poor wound healing I know now about, plus diagnosed POTS, plus small fiber neuropathy is also often comorbid with EDS. So I, and then another thing that happened was that a couple of people on Twitter were like passing around other diagnostic lists that some of their specialists had used. So we should just talk about hypermobility right now because I feel like there's a lot of stuff that people probably don't know. So, okay. EDS is Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, which is a genetic connective tissue disorder where like presumably faulty collagen and then maybe some other stuff, but that's what we know. Yeah. I think depending on the type, it can be faulty collagen or a different type of connective tissue. Yeah. And there's like many types and the number of types is going up because it's an Mm -hmm. area of active research. So like there's classical EDS and then hypermobile EDS and then many more vascular EDS and Mm -hmm. I can't name them all. But the reason that this matters is that vascular EDS has historically been associated with higher risk of mortality. So it causes increased risk in surgery and some other stuff. And so if nobody knows about it, it's really dangerous to it's really dangerous to have undiagnosed vascular EDS specifically and then so okay so I don't know enough about the history to say like when it was identified or kind of how we got to 2017 but what I do know is that genetics research has made it so that they've identified some of the variants for some of the types yeah right so if you get tested like if you go to a geneticist and you get genetic testing for EDS some of the types of EDS can be confirmed for genetic testing, but a negative genetic test result doesn't rule out EDS because not all of the variants have been identified, yeah. even for the types that can be genetically diagnosed. So like vascular or classical, et cetera. Okay. I, this seems true so far, right? Yeah. Okay. So then it's in- also, it's thought of as a rare disease. Right. So often when you go to a doctor and you're like, hello, I think I have EDS, they're like, no, you couldn't possibly have that because that's a rare disease. Yeah. So it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's rare, so you don't have it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. And so then the next thing is that I guess like as a result of the genetic research that's been going on, kind of a certain set of traits that are mostly the physical hypermobility. So whereas vascular is like your vascular system is most impacted, they were like finding in this patient body that a lot of people were, their primary primary problem, I'm gonna put that in air quotes because we know that the research is still really missing a lot, but was the actual physical hypermobility. So the biggest problem was the joint, was subluxations and dislocations as a result of the disordered connective tissue. That like, that was the biggest problem that people were having. And so that patient population, they're trying to like identify a hyper a gene of a gene variant for the hypermobile type. Yes. Okay, because there are not any identified so far. Yeah. Okay. And so instead of what one might do, which is like design a study that would specifically filter for people who you knew had a first degree relative mm-hmm. with the condition what the eds society and whoever else they partnered with to come up with the new diagnostic criteria did in 2017 is they wrote diagnostic criteria for the hypermobile type which yes. one checks your Baton score and 
oh gosh, there's so much more. There's always so much more to talk about. So the Baton yeah. scale, which I just referred to, checks the hypermobility of five joints or like five regions and five regions only. Yes. And so some people are extremely hypermobile in other joints and some people are stiff because of their hypermobility. And so they have low Baton scores, even though they are hypermobile to an observed, an informed observer. Yes. Okay. So, so the Baton score is required and it's like different a little bit by age to account for that slightly, but kind of not enough, which is why I said five yeah. would qualify for me, but it wouldn't qualify for like a child. And so the Baton score is, is for sure required to be diagnosed with hypermobile EDS. And then the next part is basically there's a couple different sections. So there are comp like serious complications that basically evaluate the severity. So like bladder prolapse is on that list. And there's a bunch of other things that kind of could happen. And if all mm -hmm. of them have happened to you, then you're calling it saying severe isn't really fair, but like you have a lot of observable complications that we can pretty comfortably attribute to EDS, I think is yeah. how that list would be explained. So there's that list, there's a list of severe complications. And then there's just like a couple things about, do you have frequent subluxations or dislocations? And then the other requirement is, do you have a first degree relative who meets the criteria for this condition? So the implication of that is that if you have had a lot of complications and you have a high Baton score and you have regular dislocations, then you meet the diagnostic criteria for EDS without a first degree relative. And if you have a first degree relative, you meet the criteria without having a lot of complications. You don't need to have had any of those complications if you have a high Baton score, a first degree relative, and regular subluxations and complications. <laughs> Dislocations, I lost myself there. So I know that you already know this, so maybe can't tell if that made sense, but did that explanation make sense? It made sense to me, and I haven't looked at the criteria for a few months. Okay. So. so before 2017, there are people who did not have first degree relatives and did not have high serious complications who were diagnosed with EDS. But after 2017, people who didn't meet the criteria who would have met it before likely mm -hmm. are now diagnosed with, and this is when things really get messy to be honest, because different doctors interpret this differently. But the idea is that people who don't meet the criteria but are obviously hypermobile and like would have met the criteria before get diagnosed with something called hypermobility spectrum disorder. Yes. So that is happening and it has caused a lot of upheaval in the patient community because some people had already been diagnosed and they no, no longer met the criteria, like some people. And so this, all of this context is relevant to both of us for the same reason, but I'll get to that in a second. So hopefully that all makes sense. So I already yeah. knew that, that like the criteria to get diagnosed with hypermobile EDS was pretty limited. And I had a high enough Baton score and I have, I do in fact have subluxate, subluxations and dislocations that I hadn't really been like registering before. Certainly mm -hmm. I haven't had a ton of dislocations. Some people have really, like you say, some people have dislocations that they can't miss, but subluxations yeah. you can miss if you've had them forever. You think that that's just what a body does and apparently yeah. it's not. Like, oh, my, my ankle is just clicky today. Yeah, great, perfect. So at the same time, a couple people had sent me or were just sharing on Twitter. And so I had them 
docs, like lists that other specialists were using that were like, here's what is kind of the systems that are more actively affected by a connective tissue disorder because it's your it's your whole body. It's not just your joints. Mm-hmm. And we kind of know that because we see this with the comorbidities, but mm-hmm. but like the actual checklist that they were using to screen people for connective tissue disorders. So I have a couple other of those and on the ones that I'd seen, I was scoring high. Like I was scoring mm-hmm. within those specialist diagnostic range. So I printed off one of those. I printed off the EDS diagnostic criteria and I went to my neurology appointment, just like my regular neurology check-in, which was in May, I think. It was in the spring of this year. So, oh, actually, no, there was one thing before that. So I went to my PCP for my annual. Same information, though. I was like, and it was a telehealth. And my PCP so far has been pretty good about referring me, which is also new. I never asked for referrals before this because it never occurred to me because I didn't blah, blah, blah. I didn't know anything. And now I realize that Healthcare is a mess and you have to find the answer before you ask for it. Yes. So, so I first went to my PCP and I was like, hello, as you know, I have POTS and small fiber neuropathy and we've ruled out a bunch of stuff because all my blood work comes back normal. I want to look into connective tissue disorders because like, I think I dislocated my shoulder in March. There's a bunch of reasons. So she was like, cool, I'll refer you to a rheumatologist. And I already knew that that was not necessarily a great plan but i was like i want to do i want to see the local rheumatologist because i i want to know like if she is good i don't want to not know that but in my head i was like and also i'm going to intend to ask my neurologist for a referral to a geneticist if this doesn't work out so i went to the rheumatologist in july and that was also telehealth so she didn't like physically examine me but i just described it and i said the same thing like I have POTS, I have small fiber neuropathy, I have, I just dislocated my shoulder, like, I'm giving a different version of my history because I know what I want to talk about with you. Yeah. And I was, and my SI joints have been bugging me a lot, so I talked about that. And so she's like, okay, well, I do want to rule out arthritis, which I want to say at this point that I have probably been screened for rheumatoid arthritis almost every year for the last five years. Like, yeah. I know that it exists in a seronegative form, but it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense for what's going on. But anyway, she's like, okay, so first I want to just like check for all of this stuff. And then if that comes back negative, then you're good. So I was like, great. You're my favorite kind of doctor. And because I am lucky enough to be in a location and situation where I could, I knew that I'd be able to ask for another referral. I was like, I'm not even going to fight with her. Yeah. Being in a position where you don't have to fight with doctors is one of the best things ever. And I have not been in that position often before, but I was like, cool, let's just test for what you know about because you're not going to be able to treat anything else anyway. Yeah. So I got blood tests. I got x-rays done of my SI joints in July. And this was actually my first, maybe my first trip out of the house during the pandemic because as like, I became bedbound almost exactly the same time that my state went into lockdown. So... I kind of, the like logistics of lockdown weren't affecting me as much because right. I was not functional. So I did that and it was actually really well done from a lockdown perspective. The blood draw was like on the porch of my doctor's office and the waiting, the you wait in the car, like all of that stuff. Yeah. That was good. But anyway, I don't have arthritis, which I already knew. And I don't have AS, which is what I think she was screening me for, for ankylosing spondylitis, which was like definitely manifest in the lower back and the SI joints. So, yes, I understand why I was screened for it. Happy to be screened for it. Still don't have it. Yeah. And she didn't make a follow-up appointment at all. Like. Great. Just like, you know, same deal. Like, canned message with the x-rays. Looks good. 
Mm -hmm. And if I were not my current self with the information that I currently have, I would have felt exactly the same way that I felt three years ago when this happened to me, which is like, what the hell am I supposed to do now? Like, what am I supposed to ask for? I'm not fine. Like, this isn't fine. But because I, because of, I guess, everything that I've learned over the last couple of years, especially through the podcast, I then just went to my neurologist who also has been really great about referrals and made the exact same case. And my neurologist is the person who did the initial testing that like picked up my POTS, picked up my small fiber neuropathy. And he's like a very curious doctor, which is rare. Mm -hmm. Like he, on the one hand had been like, yeah, these are pretty subtle and it might take us a while to figure out what's wrong because you might not meet any of the diagnostic thresholds, but like, of course we would want to monitor and figure out what's going on. Like, and so why wouldn't we do that? Yeah. And so I chose to go to this appointment in person. I had the option of doing it over the phone. So not on telehealth, but just like telephone Mm. or in person. And I was like, I think this should happen in person because I feel like, so I decided to do that. And so I brought the same paper and I was able to be like, and look at my body. It's a mess. And he, and he was like, yeah, you're tall. And so in his head, he's like very focused on Marfans for some reason. He's like, you don't really look like you have Marfans, but you are tall and there are complications. Like it makes sense to screen you for it. He's like, I just don't know who does that. Like, is it a rheumatologist? And I was like, no, actually I saw a rheumatologist (laughs) last week and she didn't like knew nothing about connective tissue disorders, only screened me for arthritis. And I had told her that I'd like have tested negative for autoimmunity a lot. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so he was like, okay. And I was like, I looked on the Ehlers Danlos Society website because they have doctor recommendations, which if anybody is in this process, look there. They're not a widely beloved org for partly because of the diagnostic criteria and I think a few other reasons, but their doctor list is reputed to be pretty good. And otherwise you could end up with a rheumatologist like the one that I saw who just doesn't know anything. So he referred me so I had a list anyway. So he referred me to a local geneticist who was not on that list because it would be covered my insur- by my insurance, basically. Okay. He was like, I think testing for this is pretty expensive. Do you want to go somewhere? I'm in Western Massachusetts. So he was like, do you want to go to somewhere on this side of the state before you go somewhere near Boston? It'll be covered. It'll be cheaper. It'll be easier. And so in my head, I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, I'm going to do that. And then if that person doesn't know anything about connective tissue disorders, like I'll try to go to Boston eventually. Like I just want someone to look at me. And so I just had that geneticist appointment like a month ago. And wait, there's one more thing before that. Okay. And the one more thing before that is I have started to like leave the bed again and I'm still brushing my teeth in bed. Like the end of the day is tough, but the beginning of the day I was starting to wake up a little bit more refreshed and I started to go on like short walks down to the end of my street and back because that felt good. And so I was like, okay, if hypermobility is in the mix, I know that physical therapy is really important because you actually have to learn how to move your body, which sounds terrible. Like you have to understand the safe range of motion and you have to learn how to stay within it. And you probably have like weird, like the muscles are, your muscles may be in spasm all the time to protect your joints. So I kind of knew like that kind of stuff. And I was Mm -hmm. like, I think I'm at the place where I need to look at that now because I feel like I'm recovering at least from the crash that I had and like, whatever my new baseline is, is probably going to depend heavily on PT. So I bought Kevin Muldowney's book, which is what people recommend the most. It's called Living Well with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or something like that. And it's like a PDF that he sells on his website. But I bought it because basically the Muldowney protocol is what everybody recommends 
within the EDS community as like, this is the best plan to try. Like, it's good to do it with a physical therapist, but uh, because of course it is. But like, if you want to learn about it, it's really focused on starting with your core muscles because if your core collapses, everything else is going to fall apart. So like, it basically starts doing pelvic tilts, I think, like pelvic, Mm -hmm. pelvic, pelvic, and then eventually core. And then it kind of radiates out from there because that is a good strategy for people who have been mostly bed bound with connective tissue disorders, which... Excuse me. I want to be super clear that it also, like, is not the same as saying graded exercise therapy for ME. This is not that kind of a protocol. So I bought it, and it's like, we really recommend that you work with a physical therapist locally if you're able to, like, give them this book. I was like, that sounds like a lot, but... (laughs) I wonder if there's somebody near, because I live in a small town and Mm -hmm. there's a pandemic happening. I was like, I wonder if there's like a personal trainer locally or just somebody who is completely local that I could be like, will you read this book and like do a couple workouts with me? Because I just don't know if I'm even engaging the right muscles. Like my awareness of my body is zero. Yeah. So I did that and it like makes that recommendation. And I started Googling and I think this was in September, maybe August. As it turned out, there's like a person who specializes in pelvic floor physical therapy in my region who also specializes in hypermobility. So yeah, and it like specifically said Mm Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome on our website. And I was like, oh my God, like what's happening? Is this possible? (laughs) How could this be? Like this is, this is, I felt like I had found a unicorn because I was like, this is exactly what I was looking for. I assumed Mm -hmm. there wouldn't be anybody nearby or like if they were, blah, 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 that it wouldn't work for pandemic times. But yeah. it turns out that this this woman who is hypermobile herself, her kids are hypermobile, et cetera, and she became a physical therapist. And she was like running a clinic out of an office and she closed the office at the beginning of lockdown and started seeing a few patients on her porch of her house. Cause she like, I live in a rural area. She lives in a rural area. You're just like looking out at some trees. She has some goats, yeah. she has some chickens. She gave me eggs once, it's ridiculous. Oh. So, so yeah, so I was like, okay, I don't know for sure that I'm hypermobile at this point because like literally nobody's examined me. And so this is what I mean about the like self-diagnosis thing. So I, I'm being like, okay, well I have a Baton score of five and I'm pretty sure I dislocated my shoulder in March and I have POTS and, 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 but like, I don't want to say that I have it if I don't have it. Like I have a big... And it's not in a policing way. This is because I because you just kind of said some, not just you said something similar. It's not like I don't want other people to say it. It's like I'm so scared that my instincts on this are wrong that I don't want to like say it until I'm sure. I don't think that other people's instincts are necessarily bad. I think that self-diagnosis is good and important and like anecdotally very effective. Mm-hmm. However, I don't trust my own. I don't know, like interpretation of my body or whatever. I have a question. Yes. Um, so regarding that, I guess, like, if you know, because you might not, what is that block for you? Like, what, or I guess, like, what are you scared is going to happen? Slash, like, where is that coming from? I think that, like, that has a long history too because I think I have a history of more injuries that I didn't register because they weren't serious and like I didn't list but I remember like in eighth grade I was walking on an ace bandage and crutches for a while after kind of no discernible injury and they were like I think I had a wrist brace for a while for the same 
reason. Like, I had a lot of minor injuries that were not obviously caused by anything that, Mm -hmm. in retrospect, were caused by something. But at the time, kind of lined up with, like, I was definitely perceived within my family as kind of, like, dramatic and stubborn Mm -hmm. and all of this stuff. And I don't think it was just hypermobility. Like, I think it's all of this stuff. But it ended up that, like, that was the role. And I was the youngest. I'm the youngest in, like, everything. So I have an older sister, but I also have a lot of cousins. And I'm the youngest cousin on both sides of my family by, out of a lot of people. And so I think, like, I was always trying to navigate the, like, is it enough that I need to take the risk of, a, of like, doing the thing that will let people know that I'm dramatic? Like, right. And that was, that was the frame of, like, you know, should I wear an ice bandage? wearing an ace bandage is dramatic. I don't know. Like, are you uncomfortable enough that, and, and it was never like, oh, you have an injury that you should be taking care of. It was like, mm-hmm. how much are you blowing this out of proportion? And is it enough that you're comfortable having other people be like, say something about it? Yeah. I think that is a big part of it. And so like the, the notion that there could be names for a lot of this stuff and that they could be like actual medical things is really, I don't even know <laughs> what the word is for that feeling. Cause it's, it's, it's so disorienting and like, mm-hmm. obviously it's like a pro the process of recontextualizing and looking back and giving it a new name is ongoing and has been yeah. ongoing for quite a while, but it's, it's still like, that's actually part of it is that like, okay, if, if this is called hypermobility, and if that means that I have a connective tissue disorder that I've had my entire life, which, like, it's possible that it doesn't, but probably does mm-hmm. contextually, then that means that all of the people around me most of my life who did care about me and thought that they were acting in my best interest weren't. And, like, yeah, that's hard to swallow. Yeah. So it kind of feels like, yeah, like, naming it, and then naming it means that you have to, like, digest all yeah. of the implications of what that name will tell you. And it's not like, oh, I don't want to be hypermobile. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't, I don't, I've been living in this under the, under the framework that whatever's going on with my body isn't a big deal. And if it is a big deal, like, that's going to break my framework pretty bad. That makes sense to me in terms of self-diagnosis, but I'm also curious do you think that if you were to receive a diagnosis from a doctor that that would feel easier to swallow because like obviously then like you would still have to like process all of that so i'm just yeah i don't curious. i don't think that it is easier i think that like i i don't think i've ever been di- pots i was told about like pots was identified in the doctor's office for me like i didn't know about yeah. it And they were like, you have it. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of like, okay, cool. Now I'm going to reverse engineer it. I don't think it's, Mm -hmm. I don't think it's easier in that way. And like, can I put a pin in that? Because I feel like the experience that I actually had with the doctor is relevant to this question. Go ahead. So, so I went to, I went and did an assessment with a physical therapist. And so she did, I saw her in person. We both had masks on, we were on a porch, but she actually checked my baton and like, also assessed literally my entire body since that's what I was there for. And she was like, well, your baton score is five confirmed. And like, you definitely have hypermobile ankles. Your neck is hypomobile, which is that like your neck is not moving as much as it's supposed to. And when 
your neck is ostensibly relaxed and like I turn it, your whole body turns with it. So yeah. like it's protecting something. It's in yeah. protection mode. And so I was like, okay, I didn't imagine this whole thing, which is the like level one validation is like somebody who knows what hypermobility looks like has seen my body and agrees. Cause she was like, you're not like a, she's like, there's like a classic manifestation where people are really floppy. She was like, you're not really floppy, but like, this is what's happening. You're definitely hypermobile. And so a week later was when I had the geneticist appointment, which was also telehealth, but she did, I did like have to go through my baton for her, which was difficult. I think a couple other people have done this. And at the end, since I knew this going in, I don't meet the I don't meet the criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And the reason for that is that I have not had enough complications and I don't know my dad's full health history because he died when I was 22. Right. And so I do know that my dad's like health profile really strongly suggests that this might have been in play for him because he mm-hmm. he needed ankle braces to he played hockey so he needed ankle braces to skate which isn't typical he wore a leg brace for the later years which i think was like an acl injury maybe which happens but weird in conjunction with everything else all of his teeth were falling apart which like i've since learned is also a common yeah dental stuff he had really like pretty severe environmental allergies. Like he couldn't deal with scents. He needed scent-free spaces, which is pretty suggested in a mast cell. His health got a little bit better when my stepmom put him gluten-free when he was like already had dementia again. Like just like all of these stuff that in the pattern language that I think patients tend to look at when we talk to each other, I'm like, oh, you're in the space. Like you have signs of MCAS, you have kind of these, like he had GI problems, he had blah, 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 blah. So on the other forms that I've been looking at that are like, here are some of the comorbidities to consider. I was like, there's a lot of relevant stuff here. It would not surprise me if this were genetic. And he also, so he, he died with Alzheimer's, but that's a probable diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis. At the time, there weren't any, I think there are, I think there are now, but there weren't any lab tests that would confirm it. So it was like, well, right. we've ruled out everything else. So this is what we call this type of dementia is early out of okay. Alzheimer's. And he was in his fifties, which isn't also isn't typical. And so, there was one more thing I wanted to say about that, but it's gone now. So so I had like talked through that. His, oh, he had something called alien arm syndrome, which mm-hmm. is that, so he had had like a tremor in his hand from when I was really young and his hand would kind of like dance on the couch beside him. And as he got sicker, that got worse till his whole, whole arm was like literally moving all over. And I've Googled this to make sure that's the right name. It is. It's sometimes called Dr. Strangelove syndrome because in the movie, Dr. Strangelove, like that's, his affectation but like Mm -hmm. there is also a real syndrome series like i don't know why they've been connected in that way but i thought that was strange anyway so he had some neurological stuff going on basically and so i'm like this is really suggestive to me that what's going on might be genetic even if our individual issues are different Mm -hmm. and like the way that i stand normally Allegedly, I think I tilt my pelvis forward. My mom's always commented on it. And she's always like, you stand just like your dad does. And I'm like, mm, do we both stand like people who have lax ligaments? Because that's what I'm starting to think. <laughs> yeah, that's like what my mom yeah. used to say about me and my dad both being part ostrich. Yeah. You're like, okay, so I know that, like, the thing isn't the diagnostic thing. But, like, yeah. when all of these... Pa- and also... Okay, and this is why I talked about this at the beginning. And then the other thing that I've like now see anecdotally is how often there's crossover between connective tissue disorders and neurodivergence as well. Yeah. And I'm like, 
Well, guess which one of my parents was like known to be neurodivergent in addition. So in this constellation, Mm -hmm. like there's just a lot of suggestion. Yeah. So I go to, I do the telehealth appointment with this geneticist who I know is not like an EDS specialist, but Mm -hmm. like whatever, we'll see. And it was a nurse practitioner in genetics. So she goes through it. She also screened me for Marfan's. I think she did like some other things. And she was just like, well, I can tell you that you don't have vascular EDS. Like you certainly, you don't have any of the indicators of that. So mm-hmm. we're not going to test for it basically because that's the only one that insurance will pay for testing for because of the okay. complications. And so we're not going to like, there's no reason to test for that. You don't have Marfan's. You definitely have a hypermobility syndrome is what yes. she said. And I was like, okay, cool. We get off the call. I also, I'm a slow processor in these moments. So it's like, it took me a full day to be like, wait, what actually happened in that appointment? Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'll wait and see what she writes on my chart. Because that was like, yes, you are hypermobile. No, we wouldn't call it EDS according to these criteria, which fine with me now, because I know what that means. But Mm -hmm. if I, so I think this is why I wanted to just say that part. So I was like, I'll wait and see what she wrote on my chart. Nothing. There's nothing in my chart. There's no summary of that appointment at all. So now I'm like, cool. What do I say? (laughs) Like, how do I describe this? One, a hypermobility syndrome isn't anything. First of all, that's just like you agree that I'm hypermobile, which is helpful, which sometimes historically would be diagnosed as a benign hypermobility, but like that is kind of being debunked as a concept. And so then that was replaced, I think, by joint hypermobility syndrome, which has also been retired as a diagnosis. So I think that the only actual diagnosis that that could be referred to is hypermobility spectrum disorder. But of course, nobody said that or wrote that down. And -hmm. of course, I also already had all of the context about like the diagnostic crap to know that hypermobility spectrum disorder basically means maybe the type of EDS that we're looking for a genetic variant for, maybe something else that we're also trying to identify, but like we haven't fully found the streams yet, but you're in this like family of problems basically. Right. And so I've been thinking a lot about like what, do- like what does it mean to have a doctor tell you sort of like, does it confirm anything? Would it have been more affirming if he, if she had been like, yes, you have hypermobile EDS. And I don't know, because, like, obviously that wasn't my experience, but mm. I, I, it was confirmed. Like, yeah, it was confirmed that I'm in the orbit of whatever planet we're all kind of orbiting together of, yeah. like, mast cell problems, dysautonomia, sometimes autoimmunity, connective tissue disorder, but, like, not in any way where it's not on my chart. Yeah. My PCP might add it to my chart because she does that, but like not all doctors would. Like it's yeah. it's an exact example of the kind of like medical magic that happens where there's no paper trail and so there's no accountability and so there's like no real plan. But she also right. did say, which I thought was helpful and more than a lot of doctors do in this situation, she was like, she was like, because the gene hasn't been identified, we don't have any targeted treatments and we don't have any targeted treatments for the, any of the other types of EDS right now anyway. So the main way to deal with either hypermobile EDS or any other type of hypermobility is like find a physiatrist who can tell you how to make your joints like who can help you put your body back together and I was like well I just started PT for that so I'm already doing the one thing but like I think having a doctor tell you that it's the thing 
I don't, I don't know. There's like, I feel like so much more of the process of diagnosis is like getting the information and then internalizing the information so that you actually know, because it, it like rearranges how you interpret the feedback from your own body. Yeah. And so I kind of, I, the way that I think about it now, which might not be universal or even true in the future is that like with self-diagnosis I'm like okay I've been like ruminating on this set of experiences for a long time and I've been kind of like circling in around what is more precise language what is a more precise understanding so that I can manage it better ideally but even if I can't manage it better understanding it better kind of does that automatically a little I think yeah and so either it's like you're already circling that space where you think you know what's going on and you go to a specialist and they're like yep and then you're Mm -hmm. like cool, I was right. I guess I'll go back to all the emotional work of processing this. (laughs) Or they're like, nope. And you're like, were they correct? Because sometimes they are and sometimes they aren't. And so maybe you're like back into self-diagnosis world. So that happens a lot with hypermobility. Like that doctor just as much could have said, you don't meet the criteria for hypermobile EDS. So nothing is wrong with you kind of. And people get that a lot. Like they'll be like, no, you don't. There's nothing going on here. Yeah. And so you can think that that's what's going on and go to the doctor and have the doctor tell you it's nothing. And then you have to leave and be like, is that true? Like, is is the doctor correct that my my assessment was wrong? This is going to get real double negative. Or is the doctor wrong and I need to find another doctor who can assess me more accurately? And like, I hate that that's even a question, but these interviews yeah. have taught me that that is a very necessary question. And it's not just getting a second opinion. It's like, your your life yeah so and then the other outcome is that you go to a doctor not knowing like without an inkling of what you have and they tell you and then i feel like it's the process is probably really similar but you're like okay cool i have a name and some language to learn about and now i have to go and sit with my body and like still internalize this information to see if it applies it's i don't know the doctor's role in this whole thing is interesting because like I was misdiagnosed with PCOS. I also talk about this in episode one. I was misdiagnosed with PCOS. And like, I didn't, I wasn't looking for it. I didn't expect it. And she was like, yeah, this is, that's what this is. You have it. And I learned a ton about it and like resolved the symptoms, not through the kind of treatment recommended for it. And was like, well, I no longer meet these criteria. So what does that mean? Like, do I have it? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. So... That was a lot of anecdote to kind of get to the more or less the present and also circle back to your question around like internal validity of diagnosis sort of. Does that get at that? Yeah. And also like, I don't know if you would be able to speak to this because like you mentioned being misdiagnosed, but like I feel like PCOS is maybe a little bit more of a disease you can touch than EDS. Mm -hmm. You know, we have all of these like, There's this whole realm in medicine of, like, mysterious illnesses. And I've heard a lot of stories on the pod of, of, like, people saying, oh, I was initially misdiagnosed with this mysterious illness, and then I got a second opinion, and now I'm being told that I have this mysterious illness, and I identify that way. And I'm also just curious about, like, what goes into that and how people think, like, how people decide which doctor was right. Yes. I guess. Yes. Because like I've never for my physical stuff I've I have yet to receive any diagnosis. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm curious, like, if I receive a diagnosis of, like, oh, you have fibromyalgia, like, you have fibromyalgia and EDS, which is, like, sort of, that's the self-diagnosis that I'm working with right now. I tell people that I have those things. Mm -hmm. And I feel pretty comfortable in it. Like, I really am someone who just is very lucky to feel comfortable with a self-diagnosis. But I'm curious, like, you know, if I get that diagnosis and then later end up seeing a different doctor and they're like, no, I think it's this, like what that experience will be like. I don't know. Just. Yeah. I. It's just something that I wish people talked about more. Yeah. I think about that a lot. So one like at the beginning when I first started the podcast, that was like one of the major hurdles that I heard. Maybe hurdles is not a word, but like things that was a problem because so much of chronic illness is siloed by diagnosis in a way that like when you're not diagnosed yet, you're like, okay, well, is this group friendly to self-diagnosis if I have self-diagnosed, which they might not be. Mm -hmm. And if they're not friendly to self-diagnosis and, or I don't have a self-diagnosis, there's nowhere to go. Like there's no one to talk to And then one of the weirder things of that is that people are misdiagnosed so often that like, cause I, you know, I don't know. I probably like subscribed to the PCOS subreddit or something. Like it wasn't, it wasn't my full identity at that time, but I was definitely like, okay, maybe this is the explanation. And so like, this is a thing I'm going to talk to other people about it. I'm going to learn about it. And then as it big, just like, I didn't relate to anybody there because my, like, none of my symptoms were similar. Like, it, it was a bad diagnosis for me. Yeah. And so that part was clear. But it was like, kind of, I'm gravitating out of that group. But now I have no community around my health at all, which is yeah. not great. Because it felt at the time, and so, I don't know, like, four or five years ago, this is probably 2015, like, that most com- most communities relied on that. And so I also think that there's an element that like identifying with your diagnosis, not in the way where healthy people accuse us of doing that, but kind of in the mm-hmm. way that you're talking about. Yeah. Like identifying with your diagnosis is really encouraged within a lot of communities and within the medical system because your diagnosis is like your key to so many of those things. Yeah. And so And also like I don't know, you were talking about spaces like not knowing if a space is open to self-diagnosis which is like definitely like a big issue but also just something that isn't even I feel like on the radar is is this space open to people who are like I maybe this is one of the things that I am considering I'm just sort of gently dipping my toes in because like like I said, I don't have issues with self-diagnosis, but I know that that's something that Margot has a lot of issues around. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I told him that I was going to be interviewing you and he was like, ask her about self-diagnosis. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Okay. So that's, yeah. But like, you know, it's really hard for him because like, he's like, I don't know what I have. Like yeah. I, I could very well have this thing. I could very well have this other thing. So it's not even, is this group open to, like, self-diagnosis? It's, like, can I be in this group if I have some symptoms that I can identify that you also have? Yeah. You know? And I just wish that, like, because I feel like probably if a group is open to a self-diagnosis, they would be open to also that other, like, more nebulous experience Mm. of identifying with like having that illness but I just wish that that was something that was made 
explicit yeah more often or like at all (laughs) yeah totally agree yeah and like because kind of in the interim period so when i got really sick in 2017 which is when i was in a moldy house in san francisco that was when i first became just completely bedbound and stopped working and i was like in i was completely in that space i didn't know what was going on i had no idea so i was like reading a little bit about chronic fatigue syndrome but i didn't have enough context for me i think that's when i started to learn about like the like that whole everything about chronic like cfs me and and it was like okay some of this stuff kind of relates to me but it's not like that's not my only thing i kind of like i relate to some of what some people are talking about but i also feel like an imposter like yeah i i was in i think i joined some facebook groups that were like intentionally broad so facebook groups that were obviously designed for chronic illness and they had like seven diagnoses in the name so it would be like cfs emmy fibro lyme eds like chiari and i was like great they don't care who's in this group like (laughs) they're just talking about it that seems fine compared to like some really specific ones you know like i'm in a small fiber neuropathy one right now that's like obviously like targeted people join all the time who actually haven't been tested for it which i don't care about but like i would have never done that yeah and that's me so um, yeah and that can be really scary yeah and like a lot of them there will be screening questions especially with facebook groups because they can do that and so and i've been rejected from groups before too when i because i was honest and i was like yeah doctors have been like you probably have this but we won't diagnose you and they're like sorry formal diagnoses only and i was like cool 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 thank you that's not helpful so that was like a weird time and i think this is when i started using twitter for chronic illness because i've had my twitter i've First of all, my Twitter account is not my first Twitter account. And second of all, this Twitter account, I used to probably talk more about work-related things. Like, it wasn't professional, but it wasn't, like, let me tell you about my night sweats every day kind of thing. Yeah. And so that was when I was like, I'm not working anymore. I'm not looking for work because I literally can't. I'm going to just, like, tweet more about this stuff. And I was still – I remember not knowing how to do that either. Because even on Twitter, which is – open in like you know you can follow anybody you can talk about whatever you want like it's unmoderated effectively i was like i don't know how to name any of these experiences like i don't know how to describe it i'm still not convinced that like i couldn't be just getting my act together and working like i'm still not convinced that this isn't something that i'm just like letting myself do because i don't know why like and so I remember, I was like, maybe, and at that point I thought, like, maybe it's tick-borne, because that's what it was coming up on some of my blood work. So I kept changing my Twitter bio all the time, because I was like, I feel like I have to say something, because that's, like, that's the process, is that, pe- you know, like, you're tweeting about it, and people are like, do I relate to this person? Let me go to their bio to learn more. And I was yeah. like, if I don't say anything, then, like, how how do I relate to people without this fundamental thing that seems required within this community, and I don't know why? And, like... I think at that time I was a lot less aware of self-diagnosis as like a movement. Right. But I also really relate to what you just said about Margot, which is that like, I didn't, even if I did 100% feel comfortable proclaiming it something like just nothing felt like it really fit. And now yeah. looking back, I'm like, that's because there was more than one thing going on and yeah. your doctors weren't looking for any of those things. Like yeah. a lot was overlapping, but so I would say that, this is that's important is like the way that i have talked about everything about chronic illness on twitter the entire time so since i started talking about it just like my own experiences as a sick person in 2017 i have been really intentional to try not to use diagnostic language 
because of that. Because, like, I was so hyper aware of how that informed my relationships to, like, other conversations and other communities. So I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't want to... I don't want to empathize with people when I see them talking about something like, because I don't yeah. have a diagnosis and I don't want them to be like, well, like, who are you? Yours yeah. is like none of that kind of stuff, which some people do like, it's real that that happens. And it's also true that around the same time, maybe it was later that I saw the illness fakers on Reddit for the first time was also before yeah. I was diagnosed. I think I've, I must've seen it by, I had seen it by 2018 because I had seen it by the time I started the podcast because I felt like hyper aware of it when I started the podcast being like, okay, I'm going to ask people to talk to me about the inconsistencies in their own history in an environment where having inconsistencies in your health history can open you up to online harassment. Like, so I think that also really informed it as I was like, I don't really feel comfortable because I don't know what to call it. And I'm really aware that there aren't places to talk about all of this stuff if you're not leading with your diagnosis. And so that's pretty messed up. Plus, there's this other environment where, like, that's actively trying to scare people from, like, admitting to having symptoms before diagnosis or whatever. And I think, because I read through it a couple times just to be like, what is going on here? And now, I, I, like, I haven't looked at it in a long time. But the people who were on it at the time that I looked at it, and, like, the things that they were calling out as inconsistencies about their stories, now I'm like, those are really consistent stories. Like, Those stories are consistent with every other story that I've ever heard. It is so normal to think that you have one thing and find out you have another thing. Like all of this yeah. is so normal. And the culture at large and a few really specific mean places on the internet lead us to believe that that's not normal. Plus a lot of chronic illness communities that rely on diagnosis, basically you lose your entire network if you find out that you've been misdiagnosed. So that's not helping us either. Like there's all yeah. of this stuff and like, the hegemony of diagnosis, let's call it. Yeah. So all of that was happening. And like, I don't have like, I mean, I don't know, it depends. Via self-diagnosis, I am now starting to feel and I have been for the last like, six months, maybe be like, okay, even though I've known about hypermobility and EDS now for a couple yeah. of years, like I'm actually starting to see the ways that my body might fit into those patterns that I know about. And that's starting to make sense to me. And that gives me like tools for making decisions about my future, which is what's most important, like starting PT and like trying to plan what can I reasonably anticipate that my body will need in the next year or the next five years. Probably can't plan longer than that, but I am starting to feel like I have the right information for that, which is incredible. And so like internally, I'm now being like, this feels pretty validated. I understand it. I feel comfortable talking about it and like naming my symptoms in this way. But medically, I'm not like, I wouldn't like walk into a doctor's appointment and be like, I have EDS, don't worry about it. I still like, and even to somebody who is outside of the chronic illness community, I'm like, oh God, I could not explain this to them. I depending depending on context, I would say different things. But like, mm-hmm. if I were dealing with someone who I knew understood this a little bit and was like a pedant about it, I would just say I have hypermobility spectrum disorder. If I was dealing yeah. with someone who I just want to understand, I would be like, I have a genetic con- connective tissue disorder. Like, it's messy, but it's been really important to me this whole time to like create convert to like create conversation and resources that are diagnosis agnostic because of that, because they don't exist. It's like not a world that we live in. So I had a lot to say about that. Thanks for asking. (laughs)
I I have another question, which will maybe be less fruitful because it's more specific. That's okay. Um, And it's sort of tying back to something that you said and that you mentioned in your TED Talk, having at one point a visible tremor. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask about that because I have pretty much had a tremor since I was like, I want to say in the second grade. Yeah. (laughs) And then you mentioned your dad having alien hand syndrome. So I just you know, wanted to ask, like, what that's like for you, and if you have any theories, you know. Yeah. So, there's, like, a couple threads around that, because mm-hmm. the tr- when I had a really, like, kind of full-body tremor, non-essential tremor, okay. I guess, was when I was living in the old house, was when it was really kind of at its worst, and most, yeah. like, I had constantly been like is this really happening am i choosing this the question that i always have about involuntary movement of like am i imagining this involuntary movement am i choosing to do it and then gaslighting myself about it for some reason those are like my first assumptions and then like one of my i like hugged one of my friends when i was really exhausted and she was like you're shaking and i was like oh i am like i'm i am (laughs) are you sure so I have like a mixed relationship with it because it started at a time when I was still really not convinced that I had a physical problem and I was still really trying to like fix my character out of this, whatever was going on. And so it, at the time it was like one of the first kind of external observable signs that something atypical was going on. And it started pretty late for me so that's when I was like 29 I think and so it was frustrating but also like reassuring is the wrong word but like there was something to it that was like okay this this is an indication and so I think now based on timing and everything I'm like that was really that was a part of the mold thing so I think for me that manifestation might be a histamine reaction okay or like tied into that. But then yeah. I have also the twitching, which is different, possibly fasciculations. I haven't looked up the pronunciation on that. It's got a lot of consonants as a word. And those are like also involuntary movement. They're a little bit closer to what the alien hand syndrome was like, because I do have like kind of involuntary arm movements or involuntary full body movements. Mm-hmm. Mostly those, mostly arm or body depending. And they track more with fatigue for me. Okay. And so, it's like if I push too hard, that'll start happening. Yeah. And so I don't, the, the like other thing that I haven't really talked about is, is I don't know how to label my fatigue yet. I'm like, I don't know, because I've been focusing on one thing at a time, like what's the biggest fire? I'm like, I don't know if an ME diagnosis is also reasonable for me because I know that that like level of dyskinesia of involuntary moment is like a hallmark of an ME crash. But then I also know that the symptoms of ME can be can be caused by structural problems related to connective tissue disorder. Right. And so it's kind of like there's a little bit of diagnostic ambiguity about like who fits into what under what umbrella or whether these umbrellas are distinct at all, basically. So I've been looking at it in that direction. Sometimes like magnesium helps. That's the biggest thing that I hear from other people. I found that to be true too but I have no idea and like I mentioned it to my neurologist and he was like oh yeah that sounds inconvenient you know like (laughs) cool like sounds like you need to sleep more if sleep helps yeah yeah I'm like I haven't talked to any doctors about it yeah because like 
I'm scared that I will get that response. But also, like, I do have anxiety. Like, that is a thing that I experience. And I would never mention this to a doctor, but it does get worse when I'm anxious, but it is just also baseline there all the time. Yeah. So, I don't know. It's, It's hard because also, like, you know, my pain gets worse when I am more depressed or when I'm having like a borderline episode. Mm -hmm. So it's, I don't know, it's hard because I feel like I can't talk about the relationship between my mental health and my physical health to a doctor. Yeah. But also that is just such a huge part of my experience. Yeah. And I like, because mine, when I say fatigue, like, one thing that I've also started to interpret, like the way that I talk about my body is so different than it was two years ago because I just spent two years like being forced to pay attention to every detail kind of. But like I have three different types of fatigue, which is that I have like physical fatigue and then I have mental fatigue and then I have emotional fatigue because those apparently all draw on related but isolated energy reserves. And so that also means that from I get re- like if I get into conflict with somebody, I get really twitchy, which is incredibly derailing. Like to be like, just ignore the twitching. Yeah. Like I want to continue the serious conversation that we're having. Yeah. Please don't pay attention to the involuntary movement. And then it also happens like just from like physical exertion. So if I either haven't gotten enough sleep or I try to do something that my body isn't ready to do, then I will also do it. So it's hard because I feel like something that I will do as like a sleight of hand to avoid that problem, which also means like contributing to that problem in a way, but yeah. is like talk about the physical part without talking about the emotional part. And, and I have been able to do that, but like, it's, it's the same fatigue and like, yeah. it's the same nervous system, you know, like it doesn't, they're not magically yeah. separable. And it's so frustrating because I agree with you. Like I wouldn't go into a doctor and be like, when I get into a really emotional conversation, I get twitchy. What do you think that's about? I think they'd be like, that sounds like, that sounds like textbook conversion disorder. And I'd be like, let's talk about that because trauma can convert into physical symptoms. However, it is not my only trigger. So that doesn't make sense here. Yeah. Like if I went to a doctor and was like, when I don't talk, to my partner about something that is worrying me, I get stabbing pains in my torso. Yeah. Help? Yeah. Because they would just be like, oh, you need to see a therapist and also get better at communication. And like, yes, I do need to do both of those things. I am doing both of those things. But I also get stabbing pains in my torso, like when I'm tired or just, sometimes for fun yeah one of the like weirdest things to me about this construction of like tending to somaticize everything is that like it is true with chronic conditions that eliminating triggers is going to be a really big part of symptom management like i feel like we all kind of learn that unfortunately as much as you are able to do because it can be really difficult but like what's absolutely wild to me is that eliminating triggers isn't a thing that you can do if you don't know what's being triggered. Yeah. Like when it's like, okay, well I have like three different examples that all create the same symptom. What is the symptom? Tell me because I won't be like, I won't know what levers to pull otherwise. 
And that somehow at the same time, like many doctors are so prepared to be like, cool, go to a therapist to manage your triggers. We don't need to know what's being, what it's causing. Yeah. But they will like deride any other triggers. Like so many people find that they have dietary triggers, like with mast cell stuff or that they have environmental triggers. And if you're like, oh, every time I walk into my bedroom, you know, like I get a headache, they'd be like, hmm, sounds like you should see a therapist about your aversion to your bedroom. Not like... (laughs) Sounds like there might be something in that environment that you should deal with because trigger management is important. It's like they only want to talk about psychological trigger management and never talk about anything else that's at play in this. Yeah. Or like a doctor would say, maybe. Yeah. It sounds like you need to move. Yeah. But if you're not in a financial situation where you can move, like, okay, like move into my living room. Like, I... (laughs) I can't just avoid a room of my house. Yeah. Like, what is it so that I can do yeah. something? Because, like, I've been thinking a lot now, too, that I'm like, oh, maybe this whole fucking framework is, like, hypermobility, mass cell, and then dysautonomia, which is kind of probably downstream from those other two things. Like, yeah, if that's been the framework the whole time, this is why we've never known what was going on. One, so like every test that I ever had done when I was a kid and while I was growing up and I like glossed over a lot of iron checks or whatever for fatigue. But this is the reason that none of those came up with anything. But it's also the reason that none of the interventions that I tried did anything. Like, yeah, I, you know, I've been put on so many diets and like all of this other intervention stuff and it didn't do anything because it wasn't targeting the right thing. Like, ah. Yeah. Uh. So, yeah, I'm a lot of screams about that. So do you have any other questions at this at this stage? We've been talking no. for a long time and I've been writing yeah. a lot, so it's okay if you don't. Okay. I have a couple like wind down thoughts too. Okay. That, and are you okay now that we're like this long into the conversation and we're both sitting upright energy wise? Yeah. Okay. So, so then like the other impact of this crash for me has been that I like have way more community and way more community knowledge than I had like two years ago or three years ago. And so I've, also been doing a lot of my recovery from that perspective and so I was like okay I don't know like I don't doctors don't really have anything to offer me right now I know that like I have a list of a couple things that I might try I want to try low dose naltrexone at some point which like helps a lot of people with fatigue and related symptoms so it might help me but like i it's not like going out and getting a formal EDS diagnosis would open any new doors like literally nothing would be different i'm pretty much on my own yeah so i have started doing more at home symptom management based on that like i after this crash in april i started taking a bunch of uh antihistamines so i have like h1 blockers h2 blockers i bought quercetin i bought nasal cromlin and i've been taking it since then i honestly don't know if it's helping but i'm waiting to stabilize to try taking them out because i have been improving i might have been improving anyway So I've been looking at that more directly and that's actually made it more obvious to me that I have different kinds of fatigue of like, Mm -hmm. I talked about like B brain, like that's something that I did not identify until this year and in this crash. Cause like most days I'm like, okay, I know what tired feels like, but for me in my body on a low energy day, I can still read a romance novel on my Kindle. That's like my one Mm -hmm. freebie. And I was like a couple times I would have days where I couldn't do that because my, I like couldn't focus and I wanted to close my eyes. And I was like, this isn't my normal fatigue. This is different. And I took a Benadryl and it went away. And I was like, this is how a histamine reaction feels in my brain. So that was new. But like, that was how my brain felt the entire time I lived in the mold house and I didn't have the tools to differentiate. 
And so I've also been like, okay, this time I know about pacing. And I had a Fitbit that I got a couple years ago for heart rate monitoring for POTS. And it died right around this time because it was old. So I was like, okay, like I'm going to use my stimulus money on a couple things to make my life work better. Like I've been so averse. I am very averse to spending money on literally anything. I like, that's another one of my brain gremlins. It has a hard time justifying spending money on this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, wait till you're better. Spend money on other things. Yeah. Like, don't assume you're going to stay sick and spend money that way. So I like, I bought this back brace recently that I had been debating whether or not I should buy yeah. for literally months. Yeah. And, like, until Margot was like, hey, have you considered getting an SI brace? I was like, yeah. <laughs> I've considered and it he was a like, lot. <laughs> so why haven't you done it? And I was, like, nervous. <laughs> yeah. Mine's like, I, and Adam doesn't have any of, like, scarcity wiring is what yeah. I call it now. And so sometimes it's like I'll be looking at something and I'll look at it for a week and I'll be like, oh, should I buy? And he'll be like, how much is it? And, like, I'm wearing a shoulder brace right now that I bought online, and it was $15. And I'll be like, it's $15. And he'll be like, how long have you been thinking about this? And I'll be like, hmm, like, three months. And he'll be like, buy it right now. Like, obviously, like, if if, if I were, like, constantly buying $15 things every day, that might be an issue. But, like, waffling that much on something that is not super expensive, that, like, over the course of the three months I've definitely been able to afford is not... Mm -hmm. Who is that serving? Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard. And, like, this is the year. So I got a couple, like, I got a shoulder brace. I bought KT tape after my shoulder dislocated. And that really is great, actually. Except that I react to it. So that's its own thing. Oh, no. But so now, like, I have my, I've been putting Pepto-Bismol on my skin underneath it. Because some people Mm -hmm. recommended it as a service barrier. So (laughs) just, like, my whole life is off, using things off-label right now. Yeah. And then I also I also got a giant water bottle, which I talked about in your interview, which will be the next episode, because it's like half a gallon. Somebody on Twitter recommended it, and now it's great. I drink over a gallon of water a day. I learned like I was already doing that, and now I can measure it. And then I got an aura. Well, two things. I'll talk about that because I already started. I got an aura ring, which is like a fitness tracker that you okay. wear on your finger. So it's like a large ring. It's larger than my wedding ring, and I have a large wedding ring, and it has sensors internally so it monitors a lot of the same stuff as a fitbit i think it was like 300 dollars, which is an expensive which is expensive and which i also waffled over for like eight months and adam was like you know i think maybe this will really make your life better and i know it's expensive but like i think that it's gonna make your life better enough that it will be worth it and so it tracks heart rate, heart rate variability, and it does like sleep monitoring stuff. And heart rate variability is one of the features that like Fitbit can't do. I think Garmin watches are the other one that does it. And it's anecdotally, according to quite a few other people, like a helpful tool for pacing. Because basically what your heart does while you're sleeping tells you how much you recovered, which will give you kind of a good idea of how many spoons you have, like to switch yeah. metaphors. So the main problem with the spoon theory which I guess if anyone's listening who doesn't know what that is, which is very possible, it's a blog post that compares lupus specifically, but chronic illness in general and energy limitation to using spoons as an energy unit. So like taking a shower is a spoon and yeah, like getting on the bus is a spoon. And it kind of 
constructs energy limitation for healthy people as a blog post and has become yeah. a vernacular. Like a lot of people talk about spoons or identify as spoonies. And one of the criticisms of the spoon theory from a lot of people is they're like, oh, but she talks about how she like tries to save a spoon, which is like her kind of talking about pacing, I think. And they're like, yeah. I can't predict my energy at all. Like I didn't relate to it because I wake up at any given place on it every day. And one of the things yeah. about the ring that has actually been helpful so far, so I've had it for about two months, okay. is that it, it turns out that like for me, those that data, the sleep data has been very predictive of how my dysautonomia and orthostatic intolerance will be. So like yeah. my relationship to my body is pretty busted for all of the reasons that I've already described. So I'm very bad at assessing how much it is safe to push myself. Like. If I sleep really poorly and I wake up with like swollen lymph nodes, then I'm like, cool, don't do anything today. But if I don't wake up like that, I have no idea. And so there have been, before I bought the ring, like one of the turning points was that I started making my own coffee again in the morning a couple months ago after like four months in bed. And like one morning that was a mistake. And it just like ended with me twitching on the kitchen floor. Like, and I think I almost... I almost smashed the carafe of coffee on my lap and I like yelped when that happened. I was like, ah, and yeah. Adam heard that, although he was asleep, he just like heard mm -hmm. a scream from the kitchen and came down. Mm -hmm. Living with me is really fun. I just make a lot of <laughs> like terror noises on, not on purpose. So that yep. woke him up and he came down and I was like lying on the kitchen floor. I think I was crying at that point. Cause it sucks. It sucks so yeah. much when you don't estimate correctly. Yeah. And so what the ring does is it basically can tell me, don't make coffee today. You are not prepared for it. And so it's turned out to be like a hugely valuable pacing tool that, again, it's more expensive than some of the other wearables. But like at this point, I'd recommend it to people who have the problem that I have, which is that yeah. you don't know where your barriers, like where your walls are at all. It has really helped me kind of stabilize like my my routine and my schedule and my output so that's been cool and that i think is like what's creating the possibility to start doing a few things again yeah what else sounds oh. like something that i will consider buying over the next six months yeah and I... then maybe pressure yeah. myself into buying yeah like just think about it for a yeah. long time because that's what i did <laughs> And I, I'm like, I'm very pleased with it, which, cause I wasn't sure. I was like, am I going to regret it? Like I've had a Fitbit for a long time. I find the Fitbit helpful. I mean, I found the Fitbit helpful because mm -hmm. the spot checks on my heart rate helps yeah. me be like, oh, the reason that you feel bad right now is because your heart rate is 140. And mm -hmm. like, I wasn't good at that before, which you'd think that one would be, but I guess if you grow up being told to ignore that input, then you will. Yeah. And then the other thing, the other change is that I finally got a cane. So I had a cane when I was in the mold house and recovering from mold, but it literally happened that that whole instance was at the same time as my mother-in-law had knee surgery. And I just mm. like, or right after. So I like just took her cane. It's like, I need yeah. a cane. There's a cane here. And it was like a collapsible hurricane. It was great. Mm. It was too short for me, but I used it anyway. And then when I didn't need it anymore, like on that cycle, I returned it. Right. And then I didn't need one for like a year and a half. And then I started to need one again. And I was like, you know, I think evidence suggests that this is going to be a pattern perhaps yeah. forever. And that maybe I could just get a cane that I love instead of like borrowing canes that I hate. And I'm really tall. So I like, I like started looking for canes that I liked and I didn't really like any, or like I found a couple that I kind of liked, but I went to architecture school, as I said earlier, which means that I have just like really specific and pretentious taste. Mm -hmm. it's not avoidable it's just fact 
so I couldn't really find any that I liked and the couple that I found that I liked didn't come tall enough for me so we made a cane and so I, I like sketched it out and then Adam prototyped it for me and so I made a cane for myself so now I have a cane so which I'm really cute. excited about oh I love that <laughs> yeah it was fun because like Adam is a woodworker. He has a shop out back. Like, obviously, mm-hmm. this is not a normal circumstance for somebody yeah. to be like, how can I get a mobility aid? But we were like, wait, could we just make one? Like, yeah. exactly to how we want? So, so basically, in the middle of this crash, I've just been trying to do as much as possible to, like, actually accommodate my body because I feel like I'm actually seeing it clearly maybe for the first time. And that's pretty wild. And then the one yeah. other thing is something that I tweeted about yesterday or this week, which is that I just got a tablet and a gooseneck because my computer is also over five years yeah. old. And like, this is my power cord. It's completely deteriorated to nothing. Oh, no. So it was like, I need to get a new device no matter what. My computer is very much on its last legs. Like, what? how could I also do that in a way that will accommodate what my body yeah. actually needs? I was like, what if I get a tablet on a gooseneck and then a keyboard and then I can lie down? And so I just did that. I also thought about that for like four months and I just did that like last week. So it's already amazing. I'm very excited about it. Um, yeah. I saw your excited tweets about it. Yeah. I like just lying down, typing on my lap. It's great. So I think that was a very long, very long summary of everything. And then my updates from this year. Is there anything that you think that I missed? <laughs> Not that comes to mind (laughs) that was very thorough thank you (laughs) okay well thank actually no you know what i think we should still say on here because this is also gonna be the first new episode yes so also new episodes are coming out which i'm really excited about and i feel like the podcast is going to be not really different in any way but like it's evolved a lot compared to the first say like 50 or whatever because i know so much more and the community has changed a lot like there's a hashtag now that a lot of people use that is people's entry point into the podcast, actually, which was not yeah. on purpose, but has worked that way. So I also feel like things are just like the vibe is shifting. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So yeah, now, I mean, I found you through the hashtag. Yeah, but but you've listened to the old podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so there's that. And then now I'm really excited that I have you to help me with the podcast. Yay. Yay. So I also was just going to like, tell people what to expect even though we don't fully know what to expect yet but because this is also part of that adaptation basically is the podcast has been on a ridiculously slow schedule all year because i've been having ongoing health stuff all year and i just can't do the computer like video chat group video chat is a no-go for my brain but video chat is like much easier than writing for me right now yeah however brains are so i was like i need some help but excuse me, I don't know how to find help for this because I know a lot of people, excuse me, who make podcasts will like outsource to like, I don't know, go on Fiverr or Upwork Mm -hmm. or something and look for somebody who can do the individual tasks for the cheapest amount of money, I guess, and that that is the goal. And I was like, I don't think that that method will work for me. And one of the reasons is that I still have to do a lot of administration in between because that's the cost of finding cheap labor and if i could do the administration i'd be doing it already and second of all and more importantly like i don't think that i could get somebody who is not chronically ill to edit this podcast i just don't <laughs> like yeah. i don't trust anybody else's judgment to 
interact with it at all or like interpret it accurately or like know where they're like just every like literally everything about it i was thinking about that for a couple weeks at least i was like okay i accept that i need help i am used to doing everything by myself because that's just i'm not because collaborating is hard when your body isn't good at deadlines and like what am i going to do about that and we still don't totally know how it's going to operate i guess but when i talked about it and you were like can i help you (laughs) i was like oh my God, I didn't even have this question fully formed, but I think that you can. Because like the main problem that I have is that I can't, like, I'm not going to be like, hey, person from Upwork who I'm hiring for $12 an hour, will you yeah. listen to 70 episodes of this podcast to get ready? Not that I, not that anyone has to listen to all of them, but like yeah. if you're not chronically ill, you would. So like listen to all of them and also my TED Talk and also some of my writing just so that you get the vibe for yeah. like the very occasion, like, it won't matter most of the time, but it will matter. Yeah. So, so that's where I'm at. And so now we're going to try to figure out how to, like, collaborate on, with two bodies that are on their own timelines, basically. And so, one, so I've, like, been promoting the Patreon more because for budget to make this happen. And then, number two, we just don't know what the schedule will be yet because I want to tell people what to expect, but we can't. But expect more podcasts because I've done three more interviews already. So there's at least three more coming after this and probably more after that because I have seven on my calendar. (laughs) So I don't know. Actually, that was me talking. I don't know. If you want to contribute to that, you can. But possibly I just said everything that needed to happen. My only contribution is that I just rolled up my spine and several of my vertebrae cracked. Nice. Classic body. Yes. It, it was very good. Uh, yeah. I feel like once you realize that like cracks might mean something, it's so much more horrifying. Yeah. It was like... Recently, I, after I started to be like, oh, is this hypermobility? I like rolled over in bed or something. And I think my SI joint subluxed and Adam was Mm -hmm. lying. Like we were reading and he was lying in such a way that his head was closer to it. And he was like, there was a suction noise before that crack. Like, like, oh yeah, that's not benign, is it? Like that's really the joint moving around. Yeah. But this, this was a good crack. I think I had subluxed something and now it is fixed. (laughs) (laughs) The kind where it goes back in. Yeah. So, oh, and one other, like, weird side effect of, I haven't talked, we haven't actually talked about this. I guess if you listen to the podcast and you're not on Twitter, I'm sorry for how confusing some of that may be. But basically, while the podcast has been on semi-hiatus, a lot of conversations have still been happening, mostly on Twitter, because that's where I spend all of my time when I'm asleep, Um, half asleep, fatigued. And so we've been using a hashtag called NEIS Void, which is short for no end in sight. It's like alongside the podcast, because it was never, it's not intended to be promotional. It was never intended to be promotional, although it kind of works that way, weirdly. I was just like, I don't know what to call this, and I don't know how to make up a hashtag because every hashtag ever has been used. So if I just try to use an expression, right. it will be a mess. Like it needs to be distinct. And yeah. this, it was in March too, so it was like in the middle of adrenaline time. Mm-hmm. And I was like, let's just go with this. If nobody uses it, it's not a big deal. And then people are using it. So now that's what it's called forever. Yeah. So if you're so if you're not on Twitter or if you are on Twitter, but you don't follow me and you haven't seen this and you're looking for a lot of people talking about chronic illness stuff 
all the time. That's what it is. And I think everybody in this first round of interviews are mostly people who have been active on Twitter, so are kind of familiar with that. So that's one way that I think, not that the tone will shift, but just like, that's a kind of context for newer conversations. I don't know if I have heard you describe yourself this way or if it's just something that I made up, but I sort of think of you as like a story midwife. (laughs) And I just love how the podcast has become like a sort of smaller way for you to like do your story midwifery. Yes, I have not said that, but thank you. And I love it. And a version of it that I have heard is that one of my friends told me that I was like a human sleepover. (laughs) She's like, you just go and you're like, guess what? We're having a 2 a.m. sleepover conversation now. I don't care that it's 3 p.m. She's like, I don't know, but you figured it out. Like you've been cultivating this for 10 to 15 years now and it's becoming more, not, she wasn't saying it in a mean way. She was saying it in a really Mm -hmm. nice way. And I'm just trying not to like exaggerate it but I was like what a time to have a vibe (laughs) so because yeah like and in that way I mean stories we don't tell and there's a book of that like if anybody really wants to get into very traumatic individual stories that have been compiled (laughs) together and I love it it is very close to my heart it's also a lot and like I'm very grateful to have had that experience because I feel like that meant that when I not when I came to chronic illness since I've Mm -hmm. been sick my whole life but like when I came to no longer being able to live in denial, I guess. After being invisibly accommodated for most of my life, I was like, okay, don't worry. I am so ready to have a lot of conversations that would bum other people out because it does not bum me out. And that's what the void is like, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing, I think because I've been tweeting about hypermobility so much, is I think that a lot of the next few episodes are all hypermobility. Because I've recorded three like i said and all three of them were hypermobile one of them is you so you know that so you're hypermobile but also i interviewed two other hypermobile people but i think there's some other there's some other stories on the calendar so they'll get mixed up but you know people can just know that if it if the podcast seems like it is more eds focused or more twitter focused that's not intentional that's a byproduct of the year that i've had (laughs) okay i think that's really it this time after two false ends. Yes. Thank you for talking to me <laughs> about me for so long, Drew. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 70 of No End in Sight. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BennisB, and you can find Drew on Twitter at FibroFuckBoy. And, this is the list, you can find space to talk about your own experiences with chronic illness using hashtag NEISVOID on Twitter and also a little bit on Instagram. And don't forget that you can sign up to sh- support the show financially over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or, if you want to support the show but you don't have a few bucks to spare, I'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. Thanks for listening.